When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I consider it a great honor to be invited into your home or into your car or on your walk or your run or wherever you happen to be as you study the scriptures. Uh, today we get to cover a, a pair of masterpieces. Section 58 and 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants are powerful revelations with some important relevance to our own lives that I hope that we'll, the Spirit will help us draw out today. In fact, to set the stage a little bit, let me uh, have you think about truth in advertising or times where you wish there were a little more of it. If you've ever seen a picture of something on the menu, for example, and then order the item and you're like, um, can I get the one on the menu instead? Because <laughs> this looks nothing like it. Or maybe this happened to us when we were house hunting once and we saw these pictures on a, on a realty website that looked awesome. And then we went to the house and I remember thinking, what kind of camera did they use? Can, can I use that for, self, for selfies? Because I'd actually look good that way. Uh, I mean, this person deserves a, an, an Oscar for cinematography or something. Because the real thing looks nothing like what was advertised. Now, often that leads to a great disappointment on our part because real and ideal are, are so far worlds apart that you're like, um, this is not what I expected. And there's, like I said, there's disappointment that comes with that. And whenever I think of that, I think of a story from my own family history. My ancestors were the first family that joined the church in Italy when Lorenzo Snow and others went to the, the Italian mission in the early 1850s. Now, they had had no success among the general Italian population. So, guided by the Spirit, they ended up climbing the Alps. And they found this small group of Protestants called the Waldensians that lived on the border between Italy and France, way up in the mountains. And when they first started gravitating to the gospel, there were some amazing miracles and parallels between the restored gospel and what the Waldensians believed. And uh, the missionaries kept saying, man, you know, these Alpine valleys and the mountains that surround them, they sure remind us of home back in Utah. In fact, that great hymn in the hymn book that we don't sing often enough, For the strength of the hills we bless thee, that's not a Latter-day Saint hymn. That is a Waldensian hymn. And so uh, these, these ancestors of mine, the converts there, were, it's, I can't say they were raised on these stories, but the missionaries kept telling them about, oh, the valleys of the Rocky Mountains are just like the valleys of the Alps. Salt Lake City, uh, it's going to feel just like home to you. Well, yes and no. One of my favorite uh, entries in this journal of, I believe it was my great, great, great uncle, Stephen Malin. He was uh, a young man as they were, cro they crossed the Atlantic, they crossed the plains, and they were, they were almost to the end of their journey. And I guess somebody was on the, the trek with them that had been there before. And so they were like, yeah, just over the next hill and around the corner, you'll be able to see the valley of the Great Salt Lake. Well, the Malin family was expecting it to look just like the Alps. Now, I've, I live in, in, this, in the Salt Lake area, and I've never been to the Alps, but I've seen pictures. And while you get deep enough into the mountains here in Utah, and it looks amazing, it's still not quite what I've seen in, my, in pictures of, of Northwest Italy. Well, Stephen Malin hears these, the, the reports. What? You mean just around the next bend? 
And so he like ditches the group he's with and he sprints up the, the rest of the mountain and, and turns the corner and looks down at a desert that had not yet blossomed as the rose. And he's totally confused. At the time, there's some teamsters working their way up the canyon uh, and he, they, they pass him and he's like, well, um, excuse me, can you introduce me to the valley of the Great Salt Lake? Do you know where it is? And they just started laughing at him. And they're like, you're looking at it. It's right before you. And with that realization, in his journal he wrote, I wept the rest of the way down the hill. As he enters this valley that was about to become his new home, that was such a far cry from the home that he left. And just that sense of disappointment, almost this what have I gotten myself into kind of a feeling. What amazes me though is in a later journal entry, when Stephen Malin reflects on that early experience and describes after uh, a lifetime of living then in the, in the Salt Lake Valley and building Zion while he was there. He described the, his feelings about it and said, if I was ever called to leave permanently, even to go back home to the Alps, the tears would begin flowing again. You see, there is a difference between expectation and reality, but there's also a difference between discovering something and creating something. You see, he thought that Zion in, in the Salt Lake Valley was going to be something he would just show up and find. It'd be there already and, and, and waiting for him. Instead, what he found was a Zion that needed to be built. And through the process of building, he came to, to treasure the experience and to love these valleys even more than he loved the valleys that he'd left behind. I think so often, whether it's in our marriage or in our family, whether it's in our missions or church callings, we expect, we almost hope to just find it ready-made. We want to, to discover the perfect spouse instead of create a celestial marriage. Because the first is so much easier than the second. We want to step into some uh, perfect situation in the mission field instead of going and, and starting from scratch in some ways and, and helping the desert blossom as the rose. Creation is so much more difficult than discovery, and yet it's creation that ends up creating something out of us, which, as far as I can tell, is why the Lord so often sends us into barren territory, so that we can be those that are offering living water to an unmade Zion, so that we can build Zion and become Zion as a result. You see, that is what's going on in section 58. Because by now, it's August of 1831, the Lamanite missionaries were sent out at the end of the previous year. They had had miraculous, unexpected success in Kirtland, Ohio. And you can, only, you can imagine for them probably thinking, well, this was just the warm-up act? We were called to go to Western Missouri and teach among the Lamanites. Well, if, if these, these, the white man here in Ohio is, is gravitating to the gospel, imagine when we actually get to our destination. It's going to be incredible. Well, not quite what they expected. If you remember a month or so ago when we talked about the Lamanite mission, it was largely unsuccessful as far as what they pictured that mission to be. They had crossed over into Indian territory, and just as they seemed like they were starting to get some traction among the Native Americans, the U.S. Indian agent said, whoa, you can't be operating here. You don't have the, the legal paperwork taken care of. And so they pulled them back across the, the river and said, well, you can, you can operate here among, among the white settlers. But there weren't that many settlers, at least not many that were interested in the gospel. Frontier, western Missouri, edge of the United States, 
was as ba about as backwoods as you could get at the time. I mean, even Ohio felt like frontier to those that were that had lived in, in New York and Pennsylvania. And even that was just a bunch of boom towns that were cropping up along the Erie Canal. For the Saints to relocate from uh, New York to Ohio was hard enough. To go from Ohio to Missouri, the edge of civilization, and even civilization was probably more than it deserved. So as saints start to gather to Zion, remember last week when Joseph first gets there and has this revelation that this is the center spot, Independence, Jackson County, Missouri. You'll end up building a temple a little far, uh, farther away from the courthouse. Or there's this spot, this, this pin in the map. But that's about all that was there, was that pin. There was hardly anything. And, and these saints, as they come, especially those that were expecting something more. I mean, the Lamanite missionaries have been there for months. Party P. Pratt ends up leaving to come home, and it goes on that little shaker mini mission, and then starts preaching to the, the, the branches of the church that were, there, that were there in Ohio. But the other Lamanite missionaries had stayed, and you'd expect that oh, months have passed, and I'm sure by now they probably have a city built and a, and a strong branch of the church uh, functioning there beautifully. By the time we arrive, it'll all be kind of red carpet rolled out, ready and waiting. Well, that was nothing like what they found when they actually arrived. And just like great-great-uncle Stephen Malin weeping his way down the trail into the Salt Lake Valley, these saints there in Missouri going, what have we gotten ourselves into? And it's with that backdrop of disappointment, disillusionment for some, that Joseph Smith turns to the Lord and receives this revelation, section 58. And for any of us, who have embarked upon something noble, something that we had big hopes for and big dreams of, when it actually begins and it's a lot harder than we thought it would be, when it doesn't quite live up to expectations, this revelation is for us as well. The Lord says to them and us, hearken, O ye elders of my church, and give ear to my word and learn of me what I will concerning you, and also concerning this land unto which I have sent you. Important reminder, I sent you here. This was not a mistake on my part. You're exactly where you need to be. And I'm going to tell you about this land that you're scratching your head over, that you're wondering about. But even before I get to that, let me talk about you. I love the order here. I'm going to give you my will concerning you. Oh, and also concerning this land. That's always the Lord's priority. It's people over place. It is lifestyle over location. And for you saints, I'm trying to work on you. And sometimes a rough location is the best way to bring out a celestial lifestyle. It's attitude over address. That's what we're going to be working on here. So let me talk to you about you and help you understand my will. Verse 2, For verily I say unto you, Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments whether in life or in death, and he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. You kept my commandments in coming here. So blessed are you. Keep keeping them. We're going to see a lot of emphasis on obedience in this revelation and the next. But talk about foreshadowing and foreboding. Wait, wait, in life or in death? Seriously? Is that an option? Yeah. Uh, it's a more present one than you realize. Faithful in tribulation? Is that what we signed up for? 
I mean, again, they were expecting the red carpet or at least the welcome mat. But imagine a welcome mat that has etched into it this kind of language. Life or death, faithful, in tribulation. And then this reassurance in verse 3, which I absolutely love. Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. Ouch, there's that word again. Much tribulation. You've got to be faithful in tribulation. Yes, you will face a lot of it. But what you're looking at right now, a backwoods hole in the wall with I mean, no civilization really present at all, that is simply what you're beholding with your natural eyes. Don't confine yourself to that perspective. You are only beholding for the present time. You're not looking ahead to what this place will become through your efforts. You see that phrase in the middle? The design of your God? You see, you understand my design? Can you look at floor plans or blueprints and envision what it's going to look like when it's fully constructed? That's what I'm asking you to do. We went, I'm talking about the difference between discovery and creation. That might be a good analogy here. If you think about the Abraham account of the creation, it was the blueprint. It was the, the, the design of your God. This is what creation is going to be like. And then if you go to the Moses account or the Genesis account, okay, now let's actually put plans into practice. We'll go from design to actual deed. That's what the Lord is asking these saints to accomplish. I know what you're looking at is nothing worth seeing, but that's only because you're seeing it now and not in the future. Only because you're looking at it through your natural eyes instead of your spiritual ones. Can you envision what this can become? I had a good friend back in Tennessee who was a general contractor. He was helping us prepare our house to, to sell when we needed to move back to Utah. And I remember him saying, you know what? People have so little vision when it comes to things. They walk into a home and it's the wrong color. And without the vision of, oh yeah, I can paint. Or, oh, there's some damage here. Or there's something I'd change. And it's like, and you can fix it. You can change it. You can make something of this. He said, as a contractor, I do that all the time. I'll see something that... Oh, even the, the seller themselves don't realize what a gem they have here. The bones are good. And if I can change this or fix that or, or refurbish or update, whatever it is, this home will be a little heaven on earth. And that's exactly what the Lord is describing for Zion. Do you have any idea what this place will become once you build it? But before you build it, you have to behold it. Remember section 29, that there is a, a spiritual creation that precedes the physical creation. Well, they're going to be asked to do both, to physically create Zion. But to get there, you've got to start by envisioning it first. So do not confine yourself to present at the expense of future or limit yourself to natural at the expense of the spiritual. It actually reminds me of a letter that I received near the beginning of my mission from my dad. In it, he was just talking about life back home and sharing with me an experience he'd had that day at church. It was fast and testimony meeting. And he talked about the testimony borne by one amazing brother in our ward that I, that I had known. You see, for the past five years, this good man's wife had been dying of cancer. My parents knew the couple well. In fact, my mom 
was the visiting teacher of this man's wife. And as she was suffering through cancer and going through chemotherapy and had to change her diet to, to just try to give herself as much of a, of a fighting chance as she could, my mom actually had such a beautiful example of empathy and condescension. My mom decided to live by the same diet that her friend was, just to suffer with those who suffer and to go through it together and just try to support any way that she could. Uh, amazing couple. And this wife eventually passed away. Well, Dad described the testimony of this good brother as he talked about the last five years, which we all knew were years of suffering and pain. But this brother described as years of happiness and love, not at all what people would have expected or what they would have seen from their outside perspective. But that wasn't this brother's perspective. And then my dad wrote this, that description, what this brother had said of his last five years, can only fit five years of suffering, hardship, pain, and trial when viewed through the eyes of heavenly love and eternal perspective, when embraced by the tender mercies of the atonement, when lifted up by the strength of the master, when the focus of life is directed toward the light and away from the mists of darkness, only then can adversity be called the wellspring of happiness and peace. I knew my dad was talking about that couple, but he might as well have been talking about me and my mission as I needed to see things more clearly through God's eyes and through the lens of eternal perspective. He might as well have been talking to the saints in Missouri. How are you going to describe this promised land? How are you going to describe your experience there? Will it be natural eyes? Will it be present time? Or will it be spiritual eyes and viewed through futurity, as the scriptures say elsewhere? You see, with the right perspective, you'll be able to say with the Lord, verse 4, that after much tribulation come the blessings. That's what this brother had realized through those years of suffering. Wherefore, the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. You see the two muches in verse 4? Much tribulation followed by much glory. You have to go through the first to get to the second. As we read elsewhere, faith precedes the miracle, or we receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. There's an order here, and if you want to arrive at the much glory, prepare yourself to slog through the much tribulation that will prepare you for it. You go back to verse 1, remember, the Lord is talking, let me talk about you before I talk about this land. Building Zion, that's almost beside the point. I'm trying to build you. You're the Zion I'm really after. We'll see that in section 97, where the Lord redefines Zion, not as a place, but as the pure in heart. Yes, the place still stands, but that means the ends is you, my sons and daughters. You see, if I'm trying to pour out blessings more than you have room to receive, you're going to need to build some strong spiritual muscles to be able to carry the blessings, the weight of glory, as he calls it, that I'm trying to offer you. So prepare for a workout. This is the day at the gym rather than the day at the spa. So don't tell, tell me anything about truth in advertising. Let's, let's think about truth in expectation. And you may not have realized what you were called upon to come to do. So your expectation was off. Realize what I'm wor really working on, you.
and you'll roll up your sleeves and and put your hand to the plow. You'll be ready to work, to build, to create, not just to inherit. It reminds me of something that King Limhi said to his people. As they've been in bondage for the last three generations, but here comes Ammon and, and the news that, hey, we're here to help you come back home to Zarahemla. And he's thrilled. His people are thrilled. But he also warns them, there's still going to be some work to do before we can get there. I love his words. He says to his people, O ye my people, lift up your heads and be comforted. For behold, the time is at hand, or is not far distant. Sound like what the Lord is saying there in verse 4? The hour is not yet, but it's nigh at hand. That's Limhi's reassurance. We're almost there. Not far distant, at least, when we shall no longer be in subjection to our enemies. Notwithstanding our many strugglings which have been in vain, things will get better. It's not always going to be this hard. And then this caution, yet I trust there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made. What a phrase. There remaineth an effectual struggle. There will be a struggle to, to make the desert blossom as the rose. There will be an effectual struggle to be made to establish Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. An effectual struggle to, to become the kind of missionary you're envisioning. To make a difference in the calling where you're serving. To turn your ward into what it is, to what it can become. To celestialize your marriage. To make your family worthy of eternity. There are effectual struggles yet for all of us, but it's worth it. The much tribulation prepares us for the much glory. And then verse 5, I love how he puts it. Remember this, which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. You see, with that, the Lord is trying to prepare them for it. I'm telling you in advance that it's going to be difficult. So gear up for it. I sometimes worry that we, that we tell missionaries so many of the glory stories and the good times and, and the, the much glory that we received by the end of our missions. And that's all true. But we, do we sometimes not get, give them the heads up that there was much tribulation on the way? Or we talk in glowing terms of how amazing marriage and family life is, which it is. But we don't prepare them very well for the, the difficult days that, are, that, we, that we pass through along the way. Maybe we need to do a little bit better striking that balance, proving the contrary, between the best of times and worst of times, since they're all part of the times in which we live. Here the Lord does not want them to be blindsided. In a way, some of them have been. It's like, wait, what? This is nothing like what I envisioned. Well, let me tell you before, so that you can lay it to heart, so that you can receive what I'm trying to give you. This is normal. This is what was to be expected. The miraculous, the glorious, yes, that's to be expected too. But it's a little further down the road. It reminds me, there were three times in the New Testament where Jesus said something similar. All when they were facing difficult days, but needed to be prepared to endure them to get to something glorious on the other side. When Jesus was talking about the signs of the times, troubling things, right? We saw that in section 45. But the Lord tells them, Behold, I have told you before. I mean, it's going to look like all hell is breaking loose, but all heaven is right behind it. And I need you to know in advance so it doesn't blindside you. Later at the Last Supper, when Jesus is describing or prophesying of the betrayal 
that Judas Iscariot was about to do. Jesus says to his apostles, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. You see, it, it might shake your faith to see one of our own, someone that I chose to, to become a disciple, an apostle. When he turns on me, betrays me with a kiss, and all of you probably start to second guess me, how did he not see that coming? How could he put his trust in someone like that? The Lord wants to avoid that possibility. And so he tells them in advance and tells them that he is telling them in advance so that when something happens that might shake your faith, it will actually serve to confirm it. I tell you before so that when it comes, you'll know who I am. You'll know that I saw it coming and that I was trying to prepare you for it. A very short time later, Jesus does it a third time. And speaking to them about his crucifixion and resurrection, neither of which they fully understand that will, will take place. He says, now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Again, confirmation of prophecy. I want you to be prepared for these things. And here, as you step into something that is difficult, something that will, that will prime you for disappointment, instead may you take it as preparation, as something meant to help you get up to speed and realize I have to endure the much tribulation part, but I know the much glory part is waiting on the other side. Now in verse 6, he starts to explain more about their circumstance. Behold, verily I say unto you, for this cause I have sent you. You're probably here scratching your head. Why did I come? Well, let me, let me clarify that for you. First, that you might be obedient. That's an interesting one. Remember, he goes back in verse 2. Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death. How long you live doesn't really matter. It's how you live that matters. And will yours be an obedient life? Like I said, we'll see much more of that in these two revelations today. Obedience is going to be key. That's one of the reasons I sent you. And not to obey when it's easy. Not to follow the Lord's standards when they're well established and there's a great track record and there's proof, so to speak, that it's worth living this kind of lifestyle. No, I am sending you that you might be obedient against the odds before it's been proven. Here on the western edge of the universe, as far as you're concerned, your obedience will mean something more than back in the comforts of home in New York or Pennsylvania. Why does the Lord send us into difficult situations sometimes? To see just how willing we are to obey. Second reason, and that your hearts might be prepared to bear testimony of the things which are to come. Let me hold on to that one for a second. And then verse 7, and also, here's the third reason that you're sent, that you might be honored in laying the foundation and in bearing record of the land upon which the Zion of God shall stand. Now that third one makes sense. To be honored in laying the foundation. Honored, great word. We saw the word privilege last week. Well here, what an honor it is to lay the foundation. It's one thing to step into something already made. It's like, oh, this is great. I'm glad I'm here. But to start something? How many people have walked on the moon? I'm not sure, but I can only name one of them. And it was the first, Neil Armstrong. Lots of people sailed to the Americas. Who do we think of? Columbus. 
or whether it's breaking racial barriers or gender gaps, whatever it might be, it's the first that we remember. That's a true pioneer. It hasn't been done before. And so to be honored with laying the foundation, you get to come in on the ground level and start digging trenches to lay a foundation. Others will come and build a superstructure upon it. But do you see the position you're in and what an honor it is? I always felt that as a missionary when I was teaching people that were about to join the church and almost being jealous. Like, do you understand who you are and the place that you hold within your generations? In my mind, it was like them at the tip of a pyramid with all of their descendants down below, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their posterity, who would have the blessings of the gospel because of their courageous choice. In fact, it wasn't just the tip of one pyramid, it was the tip of two. Invert the second, because if down below you have their descendants, then up above you have their ancestors. And because of work for the dead, that convert, and I was always jealous that, man, to be a convert and to be able to start searching for your ancestors, you can begin with your parents and grandparents for crying out loud. Me, I'm like, I think there was a great, great uncle somewhere that hasn't been baptized for the dead yet. But to think, yeah, because your choice your ancestors now have access to the blessings of the gospel. You are in that... Sp- Me? I'm, I'm down at the bottom of somebody else's pyramid. The, the Malin family. They made the choice and have blessed posterity for generations. Don't, don't get me wrong. It is an honor to be a member of the church at any time. And wherever you, you stand in the pyramid. But to, be, to have the honor of laying a foundation of something, to build something from scratch... That's what they're being asked to do. But it's going to take spiritual eyes. It's going to take eternal perspective. It's going to be looking at the design of God and thinking, okay, where do we first sink our shovel into the soil and begin to dig? It's amazing what those early saints were called upon to do. But also, and this is the one that I think gets buried in the middle, Obedience, got to learn to do that against the odds. Build a foundation, that's what you're called upon to do. But notice at the end of verse 6 that your hearts might be prepared to bear testimony of the things which are to come. And then in verse 7, not only honored in laying the foundation, but honored to bear record of the land where the Zion of God will be built. Now this one is interesting. It's really struck me this time as I studied. Is there a blessing, is there a privilege or an honor in bearing testimony or bearing record of these things which are to come? You see, this to me is part of this, the the perspective that you bring. And what do we say of the situation that we're in? Remember, we've got a a choice here. Do we want to dwell on the much tribulation side of reality? It's true, it's there. You can can if you want. Or do you want to dwell on the much glory side of reality? Because it's there too. At least it's waiting in the wings, as soon as we endure the first part. But how are you going to describe things? You see, you ask Joseph Smith about Zion, and he is just effusive in his his praise and his excitement for it. We get to be a part of this. You ask a few others, what was Zion like? And they'll be like, "Uh, very un-Zion-like. This this place is is a pigsty. It's, It's a backwater. It is not the city of God. Well, not yet at least. You see what I'm, what I'm getting at here? I, I tell this to my kids to the point that they, they, they roll their eyes whenever I say it. But attitude is everything. How do you describe your ward or your stake? How do you describe your mission or your mission companion? How do you describe your marriage and your family? 
How do you describe your calling? Just how do you describe your present circumstance? Is it just through natural eyes and the complaints of the natural man? Is it just present circumstance or can you back up and see it through the lens of an eternal perspective? Can you describe years of suffering as years of happiness because of the way you view it? How will you bear testimony and bear record of the land of Zion? I am so amazed by the boundless optimism of Joseph Smith and the boundless optimism of every prophet and apostle that I'm familiar with. It's not that they're blind to present difficulties. It's that they have full view and vision of the glories that have been prophesied of. They remember it. They lay it to heart. And it prepares them to truly receive all the good things that are to follow. Yes, there is an effectual struggle to be made. I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm trying to prepare you for it too. But why dwell on the, the proximate when the ultimate is absolutely glorious? So bear that record. Bear that testimony. It's almost like, what kind of a brochure are you going to write about the land of Zion? Will it scare off future settlers? Or will it be such that when they read it, they want to come running? I don't chastise Lorenzo Snow at all for his description of the Salt Lake Valley in comparing it to those alpine valleys of northern Italy. Was he lying about it? Was he trying to trick them into to giving up what they had to come and, and join in this desert wasteland? Not at all. He saw Zion through the eye of faith and knew that they could too. And they came to see it in the same way that they did. Ask the majority of people in, in New Testament times what they saw in Peter, James, and John. And they, I mean, we saw it in the book of Acts, a bunch of illiterate fishermen, uneducated laborers, no-namers. But what did the Lord see in them? The rock, Peter. The sons of thunder, James and John a foundation of prophets and apostles. I will be your chief cornerstone. But look at yourself and see yourself the way I see you. Isn't that what patriarchal blessings do? Whoa, that's who you think I am? That's who you know that I can become? How will you bear record and testimony of Zion? I pray that it is in terms of spiritual sight and eternal perspective. We have glorious days ahead. So go build the foundation, sign me up. What an honor that will be. And what are we laying that foundation for? Look at verse 8. And also that a feast of fat things might be prepared for the poor. Yea, a feast of fat things, of wine on the lees well refined, that the earth may know that the mouths of the prophets shall not fail. I love that description, fat things. You picture a Thanksgiving feast Spare no expense. I think it's Jacob in the Book of Mormon that says, let your soul delight in fatness. Isaiah talks about these fat things too. This is the kind of feast that we are laying out on the table in Zion. And notice who it was for. Specifically, he mentions at the beginning, the poor. He'll come back to that in just a minute. But notice at the end, why lay out this feast? That the earth may know that the mouths of the prophets shall not fail. 
We talked about prophecy earlier. Verse 5, I'm telling you this before. Well, the prophets have prophesied of this for time immemorial. And God always has his prophets back. And then verse 9 and 10 and 11. Yea, a supper of the house of the Lord, well prepared, unto which all nations shall be invited. Why do you think I'm sending all these missionaries out two by two everywhere they can? Verse 10, first, the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble. Then in 11, and after that cometh the day of my power. Then shall the poor, the lame, the blind, the deaf come in unto the marriage of the Lamb and partake of the supper of the Lord prepared for the great day to come. Wow, those verses put in perspective what you're trying to do. We are trying to lay out a feast but even before the feast, we've got to build the banquet hall. We have to prepare ultimately for the marriage of the Lamb. There's all kinds of parables that are being woven together here. The parable of the marriage of the king's son. It's a lesser known one, but it speaks of the crown prince being married. The son okay, of the king is being married. And the, the king has sent out invitations. Everyone is supposed, and all are invited, right? We saw that at the end of verse 9. Unto which all nations shall be invited. This is the supper of the house of the Lord. By the way, house of the Lord, we're thinking temple there, endowed with power from on high. There's one that's going to be built in Ohio, but there's another that's going to be built just across from the courthouse there in Independence. A lot of temple symbolism here. The supper will be well prepared, but will the people be well prepared to come and receive it? All nations have been invited. Invitations went out, but according to the parable of the marriage of the king's son, when the day of the, of the wedding feast actually arrives, all those who were previously invited, well, not all, but many of those previously invited came up with excuses, uh, reasons why they couldn't come. Well, I bought some land. I need to go check it out. I bought some yoke of oxen. I want to go on a test drive. Oh, I just got married. I just want to kind of stay at home with, as newlyweds. Well, what an embarrassment it would be for the, the crown prince to step into a wedding feast that is empty. Again, the feast prepared, but the feasters unprepared. And so according to the parable, what do they do? He sends out servants to go beat the bushes, to, to find the, the, to go through the highways and byways to find anyone that would be willing to come to the feast. You sense the order here? He first invites the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble. Many are called, but few are chosen. And why not? Well, is it their riches and their learning and their wisdom and their so-called nobility that's keeping them from accepting the invitation? Oh, this wedding feast is beneath me. Now, not everyone's like that. There are some rich and learned and wise and noble who come. And it's interesting that they come first Talk about the day of the Gentiles being fully fulfilled and then the day of the Jews. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And to bring in their wealth and their learning and their wisdom and their nobility. But why? You see, verse 11 isn't an afterthought. It almost, at least as I read it, verse 10 almost seems to be still part of that preparation stage. Yes, all of you who, who feel worthy of being there come, but come to do what? To keep getting the food on the table. The rich to serve the poor. We are trying to learn the law of consecration here. The so-called noble to lower themselves, to humble themselves. The chief becoming servant of all. 
There is no one more rich in spiritual things and learned in doctrinal truth and wise in the wisdom of God and noble in terms of the greatness and nobility of God than Jesus Christ himself. And yet what does he do? He serves the guests. He washes the feet. He breaks the bread. He blesses the wine. He, he offers himself. The chiefest has become the servant of all. And these rich and wise and learned and noble that come so that ultimately they can make preparation and, and set the table and pull out the chair for the lame and the blind, the deaf, the poor. Those that may not feel quite so comfortable there. Do we understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to accomplish? Are we inviting all that will come? to partake at the table of the Lord. Believe me, there are fat things to be feasted upon. So please come and eat. Verse 12, Behold, I, the Lord, have spoken it. You have my word for it. I am that word. I gave my word to the prophets. They bore testimony and bore record in such glowing terms of what they saw through the eye of faith that in some ways you couldn't help but be disappointed by present realities. But the truth still stands. The prophecy will be fulfilled. Exercise your own faith and hope and go roll up your sleeves and start building. The Supper of the Lord is a feast that no one will want to miss. Verse 13, he concludes this portion, and that the testimony might go forth from Zion, yea, from the mouth of the city of the heritage of God. Get a sense of that brochure again, the bare testimony, the bare record. Well, here again, the testimony needs to go forth from Zion. It needs to be people that are right here making a difference, building the kingdom, and sending out the, the, these positive reports of all the good that is taking place here. Come and prepare for the feast. Now with that perspective, that eternal perspective in mind, granted through those incredible first 13 verses, now the Lord is ready to, to get down to brass tacks, to be able to speak in specific terms to some of the, the, specifically church leaders there on the ground in Zion, that this is some of the things that need to be, you need to be doing and need to be changing about your efforts, about your perspective on things. First, let's start with Bishop Partridge. Partly since he'll have the responsibility to divide out lands of inheritance and help people settle on the temporal things of the saints, but also because Edward was one who had been struggling. He was successful. He was among the rich and the learned and the wise and the noble compared to most other church members. Again, perfect person to be in charge of the temporal affairs. It's not going to fall apart under his watch. But he's kind of falling apart under the weight of responsibility uh, when compared to the difficulty of the situation on the ground. I mean, he's there, again, tip of the spear, pioneer. He even writes a letter back home to, tell, to warn his wife and children, I don't know if you want to come. You may just want to stay there until Zion is built. Then you can just come and move in. Well, they were going to have none of that. Uh, amazing family. They rolled up their sleeves and came and got on, in on the ground level too. We want to be part of that, honored with the chance to lay the foundation. But Edward is struggling. You see in verse 14, Yea, for this cause I have sent you hither. It's the whole reason I sent you. And have selected my servant Edward Partridge, and have appointed unto him his mission in this land. 
Specifically, you are one of the people that I have in mind as I describe that incredible honor of laying the foundation. But, verse 15, and this is where Edward has some, some changing to do, if he repent not of his sins, which are unbelief and blindness of heart, let him take heed lest he fall. Now that caution applies to us all. We all need to take heed lest we fall. But specifically for Edward, I love the two things the Lord mentions that you need to repent of. Unbelief. Why don't you believe me when I prophesy in advance what it will someday become? It's not always going to be this hard, Edward. Things will be better. And they'll be better thanks in large part to the role that you will play if you'll play it in faith. Repent of your unbelief. And secondly, repent of your blindness of heart. Remember back in verse 3, you can't behold with your natural eyes. In fact, it's not even eyes that are useful here. It's heart. And it's the blindness of heart that is concerning to me. Can you not feel the reality of the designs of God? Can you not open yourself to have the Spirit confirm that what prophets have said in advance will come to pass if you simply have the faith and the work to make it happen, to pick up those blueprints and floor plans and then pick up a hammer and start to build, to look at a recipe of fat things and almost start your mouth watering because you can picture with the eye of faith what it's going to taste like. And best of all, how the poor and the blind and the deaf and the lame who have never eaten such fatness, how they'll feel when they taste the fruit of the tree of life. Oh, that's, that's sight. That's savor. You've got to overcome your unbelief and blindness of heart. It's too easy to look at present conditions and wave the white flag or throw in the towel and just say, it's never getting any better. But it will if you will repent of that unbelief and blindness of heart. Trust the prophets. Trust the Lord. It's his wedding feast after all. And it's going to be one for the ages. Then in verse 16, Behold, his mission is given unto him. It shall not be given again. Don't, don't second guess me here, Bishop Partridge. Yes, you're in the right spot, and you're the right person, and this is the right time. So all evidence to the contrary notwithstanding, this is your mission. Try your best to see what God is seeing. And you won't ask for a release or a reassignment. Verse 17, Whoso standeth in this mission is appointed to be a judge in Israel, like as it was in ancient days, to divide the lands of the heritage of God unto his children. We usually think of judges in Israel, which is another title for the bishop, in terms of judicial action, that he is pronouncing judgment upon us of, of innocent or guilty, helping us work through our sins and repenting. And all that is true. But in the context here, it's a different kind of judge in Israel. It's like those in ancient days who divided the lands of the heritage of God unto his children. For this, we think back to the book of Judges. And their, their judicial actions seem to be the, the I don't know, the, the lesser part of their responsibility. The bigger part was to help restore the people of Israel to the lands of their inheritance. It's to conquer the enemy that stood in their way. 
And I love the thought of a bishop here, Bishop, bishop Partridge in this case, but all those who are called to be judges in Israel, not just to help people repent, which is huge, but to help them receive their inheritance from God, helping them overcome their enemies, helping them establish themselves in the promised land. Now, verse 18 goes back to the judicial sense, to judge his people by the testimony of the just and by the assistance of his counselors, according to the laws of the kingdom, which are given by the prophets of God. So as you do pass judgment, which is a necessary part of your responsibility, make sure it's by through justice, make sure it's by proper testimony, make sure you're not alone in this, the assistance of your counselors, other you know, sources of wisdom can be helpful here. Judge them against the standard of the prophets of God. Verse 19, For verily I say unto you, My law shall be kept on this land. So there is a measuring stick that you need to measure yourself against. There is a standard that needs to be kept. No wonder he has to help people become Zion through the process of building Zion. I need you to learn to be obedient. That's what he said that back in verse 2. Blessed are you who keepeth my commandment. He said that back in verse 6. I sent you here so that you might be obedient. In some ways, no wonder that Zion had not yet blossomed as a rose. No wonder we haven't yet been called back to go build the new Jerusalem in, in independence. Are we ready to keep God's law upon that land? Remember, Zion is the pure in heart, even more than it's a place of righteousness. Are the righteous prepared to go live that law? See, most teams have a practice facility that is different from the place where they actually play the game. It's there that we're going to work out the kinks. It's there that we're going to practice the plays. It's there we're going to try to turn vision into reality. So that then when we actually step onto the court or the field where the game is actually to be played, where it will count, hopefully by then we are ready to keep the law of the land on that land. We're ready to execute the game plan. He then goes on in verse 20, Let no man think he is ruler, but let God rule him that judgeth, according to the counsel of his own will, or in other words, him that counseleth or sitteth upon the judgment seat. I'm so grateful for the good bishops that I have had and those that I've served with, because they do do this. They don't think they're better than anyone else. They aren't coming in as rulers. They are letting God rule them in their judgment. Those times that I've been part of disciplinary councils were the times I most turned to the Lord for his, his clarification. It's, it's a sense of the God doesn't delegate the atonement very far. And for one of his judges to turn to him and say, Heavenly Father, what is it that thou wouldst have me do? How do I help this person establish themselves in the land of promise? I want to do this according to your rule, according to your will, according to your word. I'm not the ruler here. I remember hearing a story of one bishop as he sat down to begin a disciplinary council, and he said to the person that was there to be judged. The bishop reassured the person and said, you are not on trial here. We all are doing the very best we can to follow the counsel, the commandments, the laws of God. It's not from some place of perfection that I am passing judgment upon you. It's as a fellow sinner in need of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Remember, I am not the ruler here. God is. I'm not the judge. God is. I am simply trying to find out what he would have us do in this situation. 
And 21, let no man break the laws of the land. For he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. It's like, which of those two is a higher standard? And if I'm already living the law of God, then the law of the land is, is an easy thing. I'm already fulfilling that. And which is God after? He's not just trying to live some temporal uh, judicial law. It's the divine celestial standard. That's what the Lord is trying to lift us up to. Now, verse 22, Wherefore, be subject to the powers that be, until he reigns whose right it is to reign, and subdues all enemies under his feet. That phrase, he whose right it is, that's the definition of the word Shiloh, which is another one of the Old Testament nicknames for the Lord. But to think that in the meantime, until he comes, and the feast of fat things is spread out upon the table, the supper of the Lord. In the meantime, we need to be subject to the powers that be. In this case, the laws of Missouri that are going to be tricky for us to be able to navigate in. We saw that, a little of that last week. We'll see a little bit more of it now where there needs to be uh, legal purchases of land, titles and deeds and so on. Again, in a perfect world, we're living the law of God, and my word is my bond, my yea is yea, and my nay is nay. And I don't have to swear and, and get things in triplicate and notarized and everything else. But in the meantime, you've got to live the law of the land too. Live the law of the land as we're working towards living the law of God, which is far above it. Verse 23, Behold, the laws which ye have received from my hand are the laws of the church, and in this light ye shall hold them forth. Behold, here is wisdom. Now that could cut two ways. It's interesting what the Lord is saying there. Behold, here is wisdom. We saw that last week over and over and over again. I'm trying to help you be wise here. You're going into the land of your enemies. There's going to be some serious culture shock in both directions here. So let's be wise so that you can be planted here. I need you to hold forth these laws as being the laws of the church. When he says, in this light, ye shall hold them forth. As I read it, there seem to be two possible audiences here. There's the church audience that need to know, these are the laws of God. Do you understand how important these are? These are higher than the laws of the land. So hold them forth in that light, in hopes that Latter-day Saints will aim to live the higher celestial law. Because if they're doing that, oh, the lower terrestrial law, or the law of the land, that, that's not even a concern anymore. You're above it. But I also wonder if the Lord is saying here to be wise in how you hold these forth to a non-member audience. See, it's one thing to come in and tell Latter-day Saints, these are the laws of God. So treat them higher than you would the laws of the land. But to a non-LDS uh, perspective that are not members of the church, here when he says, these are the laws of the church, make sure you hold them forth in that light because that's wisdom. I wonder if he's suggesting to the saints, as you go in to meet and mingle with the locals, don't come in with spiritual guns blazing, saying, oh, you are so far beneath the law of God and you need to live up to it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They haven't made those covenants. They're not, they haven't decided to hold themselves to that standard. So you don't need to hold them to that standard yourselves. As far as they're concerned, those are just the laws of your church. And since I don't belong to your church, then I'm not responsible to live those laws. Okay. If I can hold them forth in that light, then that saves me a lot of grief in and animosity from those that, know, uh, that would feel judged by me 
if I'm holding them to a standard that they don't hold themselves to. Does that make sense? One of the challenges that they'll see as the saints as are driven out of Missouri is because they didn't do as good a job as the Lord here was suggesting for them. They didn't live up to God's wisdom. And they ended up coming in basically saying, oh, this is the promised land and it's for us and we're here to inherit the heritage of the children of God. So you're free to leave. Or here's the law of God and you're not living it. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? Where are you coming from? And you better believe there was friction. And the locals were like, we've been here longer than you have and get, get out. We're not, we're not holding ourselves to your law. I think we need to be careful not to hold people to a covenant that they haven't made yet. Oh, this is, these are the laws of my church. Oh, that, that's against my religion. But I'm not judging or condemning you for living a different lifestyle. Remember, I'm trying to build a better house across the street, not tear down the house that they're living in. So temper your zeal with some wisdom, as he's describing it here. For a Latter-day Saint, these laws are higher than the laws of the land, because they're the laws of God. But to a non-Latter-day Saint audience, these laws are less than the laws of the land, because they're just the laws of our church. With wisdom and order and patience and love, hopefully, these non-members can come to learn the glories of this lifestyle, choose to live it for themselves, make covenants to do so, and then in their own sight, I don't have to force it upon them, in their own sight, the, the level of that lifestyle will rise and rise until it goes from, oh, just the laws of that church to, wow, those really are the laws of God. And they're so much higher than the kind of level of living that I was used to. Yes, I want to move into that house across the street. Be wise here. Now, verse 24, his, he continues his message to Bishop Partridge. Now, as I spake concerning my servant, Edward Partridge, this land is the land of his residence and those whom he has appointed for his counselors and also the land of the residence of him whom I have appointed to keep my storehouse. I love that the Lord calls it not the land of his responsibility, but the land of his residence. Live here. Sink down roots. This is not writing a check from the, you know, I gave at the office. This isn't sending service from a safe distance. This is, this is getting your dirt under your fingernails. This is working with the, the poor and the lame and the blind and the deaf. This is coming to know them. This is condescension of Christ. The earth became the land of his residence, not just the, the, the sphere of his sacrifice, not just the place of his responsibility. He came to dwell among us. And Edward and his uh, counselors and others appointed to help with the storehouse and everything else right here. The source of the assistance needs to be close enough to the people that it can really make a difference in the ways that will that will be most helpful to them. That to me is one of, the, one of the downfalls of government welfare because it's too far away. And that distance makes us feel entitled to it. Elder Renlund taught that principle in a conference talk years ago. The further away from the source of the assistance, the more entitled to it we tend to feel. And from that distance, they don't know exactly what's best to give to the person in need. But if it's your residence, that's why bishops and release study presidents are on the ground, boots on the ground, right there in the midst of people's lives and circumstances to be able to help in much more tailor-made, individualized ways. 
church welfare will always be superior to government welfare because of one's place of residence. In fact, 25, he says, Wherefore, let them bring their families to this land, as they shall counsel between themselves and me. So there's agency and inspiration at work here in verse 25. That contrary is being proven. Yes, I want you to bring your family. Uh, this is like when Edward writes the letter back home and says, I don't know if you're prepared for this, honey. It's crazy down here. It will be such a change in lifestyle if we give up our, our, our wealthy and, and comfortable living back in Ohio to come here to, to the backwoods of, of Missouri. But they did counsel between themselves. They did counsel with the Lord. I love both the horizontal and vertical counseling going on here. Talk it over, husband and wife. Discuss family counsel, but make sure that the Lord gets to be a, a voice in the council as well. And as they discuss together and involve the Lord, the rest of Bishop Partridge's family did join him in Zion to help build it, not just to inherit it. And then we get to what may be considered the most famous part of section 58. The next few verses, 26 through 29, are, are absolutely key here. Now, I, I think I misinterpreted them for the first, I don't know, 30 years that I studied this. But I since have had a, a change of perspective because the initial audience became more clear to me. I'll explain what I mean. Verse 26, For behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant. Wherefore, he receiveth no reward. So he's been talking about reward throughout this, right? Much glory that comes after much tribulation. You'll be crowned, the blessings, the feast of fat things, all of this. But if you have to be commanded in everything, if you have to be compelled to do these things, then there's really no reward at all. Remember, I'm trying to work on people and not just on place. It's attitude I'm after, not just the outward actions. Now, I always read verse 26 as as chastisement to the, to the spiritually lazy. Anytime it's like, ah, do you have to be told everything? You're just kind of sitting around on your lazy duff, just waiting to be commanded and compelled. No wonder he's described as slothful and unwise. A sloth is such a great mental image for this, where it's like, man, this animal that moves so slow that like moss grows on their fur? Hello. They're so lazy, they can't even sit on top of a tree branch. They just kind of hang from below. And they're, I mean, they even have curved claws, so they don't have to grip with their fingers. It's just, I mean, they're, they're, they're like they're, their own animal hammock, and they just hang there. Talk about a perfect uh, metaphor for someone that's just lazy and has to be pushed and prodded to do anything. Now, let me pause my soapbox condemnation for a moment. Because, well, that's how I used to read it, and there may be some truth there. I see it very differently now. Because who is he speaking to? Specifically, he's addressing the Colesville saints that had become the Thompson branch and are now this first group of real settlers to establish a residence, an inheritance in Zion. These are not just missionaries that are going to go down and preach the gospel on the way and then come back to Ohio to go back home. We'll see that in a moment. These are people, remember, they've already given up everything they had in New York. 
to come down to live on land that Lehman Copley had said he would consecrate to them. And they go and they start improving up upon the land. They, they build fences and they, they cut down timber and they, and they plant fields. And, and they're ready to go. And then Lehman Copley pulls the rug out from underneath them and says, Nope, you can't stay. And Joseph Smith is scrambling and the Lord is telling them, Well, I did tell you that to act on the land as for years, which you did, but also be prepared that you'll only be here for a little season, which you didn't quite realize just how little the little season would be. Uh, you've given up everything twice and under divine command i mean yes last week we saw uh, some chastisement for the thompson branch the colesville saints that had been a little at, too adamant about uh, we need newell knight to remain our leader we don't want him to go off on some other mission that he was called to do was there some stiff neckedness there was there some rebellion there yes and the lord chastises them about that back in section 56 but they came they, they dropped it all and they came. It's amazing what they've done. And essentially what's happening here in section 58, it's they've come to Zion and they go to Joseph Smith and they ask him, what do you want us to do? That's an amazing thing to ask. Bishop, we're here. Put us to work. I mean, basically that's what's happening. Essentially, this is the first Sabbath for the Colesville saints here in Zion, the prophets there, and they ask him. It's the first day at church. Bishop, what will you have me do? Prophet, put me to work. Imagine somebody coming to the bishop and saying that. Do you have a calling for me? I know we haven't formally met yet, um, but as soon as my membership records get transferred in, I'm here to do anything you would have me do. And imagine the bishop responding, Oh, you slothful and unwise servant. Wait, wait what? I, I'm volunteering my services. I've proved myself in every previous ward, and I'm just here to, I'm at your service. Oh, you slothful. What are you talking about? I'm blown away by the audience of this particular revelation, because these are people who have proven their obedience repeatedly, proven their sacrifice repeatedly. You need me to leave New York and abandon everything I've known and move to Ohio? Done. Oh, now you need me to leave Ohio and move to Missouri? At your service. And when they get here, it's, okay, now I'm ready to, for the next piece of instruction. And what is the Lord saying to them here? What is the source of what he considers their slothfulness or their lack of wisdom? That, this is what amazes me. In verse 27, the Lord starts to explain. Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness. So many important phrases there. Anxiously engaged. Not just anxious to be engaged. Like, hey, I'm ready to put me to work. I, I, I'm getting a little antsy here without having a, a formal calling. And I'm, and I'm kind of just kind of waiting on my marching orders because I'm, I'm getting anxious to be engaged. No, be anxiously engaged. Get the engagement going, get involved, get engaged in things. Make sure it's a good cause. Do many things. Do it of your own free will. Go bring to pass righteousness. Now, do you understand what, what these Colesville saints are being asked to do? It's almost like you have proven your mastery of obedience and sacrifice. But how about mastering proactivity and initiative? You see the difference? It's one thing to do what you are told. It's another thing 
not to have to be told in the first place. Now there is an order here and a growing up in God. We have to master obedience to outside commandments before we can get to a point where we don't need those outside commandments anymore, where I'm simply anxiously engaged that I'm recognizing opportunities to bring to pass much righteousness around me, and I'm just diving in. I'm acting of my own free will, not just offering my will to a leader that's asking me to obey. So I remember when my, my children were little, at one point uh, my brother was in town, and, and they were cleaning up the house or something, and my son came to him and said, what should I do next? And just, he was obedient, he was anxious to be engaged. It's like, we're cleaning the house, okay, what, what's my next thing? And my brother, uh, we all make mistakes in parenting. And at this point, uh, my brother said to, to my son, that's the worst kind of question you could possibly ask. And my son was devastated he and confused. He's like, what do you mean? I, I, I just, I want to help. I just don't know what to do next. And my brother tried to explain to him, just look around. There's all kinds of things that can be done. So take the initiative, recognize the need, and, and then go meet it. Now, in my brother's defense, what he was saying was true. I just think it was a little premature based on the age of my son. I mean, grow up a bit. The fact that he is proving his obedience, that's, that's more than I can often ask when I'm asking him to do things at the time. Uh, but you understand what I'm trying to get across here? Eventually, the Lord wants to respond the way my brother did. That's kind of what's happening here in these verses. You shouldn't have to ask the prophet what you need to do. Just do something. Bring to pass much righteousness. Go from obedience to initiative and from sacrifice to being proactive. That is one of the most profound pieces of progress that we can undergo in our lives. He, he continues this in the next few verses. Verse 28, for the power is in them. President Nelson wrote a book years ago called The Power Within Us, based on that phrase. It's an amazing read. But the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. And inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. Now, do we see what the Lord's getting at here? I want you to be an agent unto yourself. We've talked about be having agents for the bishop. Sidney Gilbert, for example, last week was called to be an agent to help with the storehouse and the distribution and division of land and so on. But that's somebody else being an agent unto you. That here's your stewardship. Here's what the Lord would have you do. And it's their work and effort and, and spiritual discernment to try to understand what that stewardship ought to look like. Now, it's another thing for us to become agents unto ourselves. This is the proactivity piece that I'm not just sit, sitting around waiting, anxious to be engaged, Bishop put me to work. It's, wow, I can be an agent unto myself. You see, there are, remember when, when Lehi talks about this in 2 Nephi chapter 2, that there are things which are created to act and others that are created to be acted upon. Or another way to put that is some things are agents and other things are objects. The object is is what we work on, but the agent is the person that's working. And what's amazing is the Colesville saints had proven that they were obedient objects. You want to move me, I will move. You want to command me, I will comply. You give me my orders and I will obey. 
But having proven that, we talked about this last week, having mastered the iron rod, are you ready to graduate to the Liahona? Where there's some more initiative here and your diligence and faithfulness and heed? Are you paying attention to the right spindle? Are you reading the right words? How are you doing here? Are you ready to graduate from obedient object to proactive agent? Because that's what the Lord is after. That is growing up in God. That is deciding that the power is in me. I don't have to wait around for the bishop to ask me to do something. I can see a need and meet it. I don't have to wait for a formal calling. We've all been called to make a difference in the lives of others. So don't wait for an engraven invitation or an official responsibility. This is your residence. You live here. Meet needs. Bless people. Lift where you stand. Just do good. I love that phrase. It's such a simple uh, encapsulation of the Savior's mission. That he went around doing good. Makes you wonder, if there was a minimum requirement of the Savior's ministry, what would it be? I would say it would be the atonement. That's what saves us from sin and death. You want to take it up a notch? Then add his message to teach the truth so we know how to live. Okay. But ministry? How much of that was not obeying orders from God, but rather taking the initiative, seeing need, being an agent unto himself, and simply doing good? Christ was always anxiously engaged, and it was his own free will that motivated him. Having already taken the first step, the Colesville Saints are being asked to take the second. Having mastered iron rod, they're ready for Liahona. You were an obedient object. Now be an agent with divine initiative. I, I love this process. He then says in verse 29, and this also puts things in, in dramatic perspective, but he that doeth not anything until he is commanded and receiveth the commandment with doubtful heart and keepeth it with slothfulness, the same is damned. Now that's strong language and, and some pretty stark condemnation there because in some ways it's like, whoa, 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 but, but I did it. He that doeth not anything until he's commanded, but I did it. Well, yeah, but not till you were commanded. He that receiveth a commandment with doubtful heart, but I received it. I know, but doubtfully. He that keepeth it with slothfulness, but I kept it. I know. And your actions are not what I'm trying to call you to repentance about. It's your attitude. Your verbs were fine. It's the adverbs that still need a little work. Are you doing things doubtfully? or slothfully, or reluctantly, hesitantly, without real intent or full purpose of heart. Again, the first step is mastering those verbs. It's doing and receiving and keeping. The next step is now to purify our motives. Remember, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, you're perfect. Chapter 6, now it's time to purify our motives. And then chapter 7, Quit judging people that are further back on the path. Okay, that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So first step, Colesville saints have been mastering, doing, and receiving, and keeping. Now, next level, let's work on our attitude.
and our initiative. I'm now less concerned about what you're doing and more focused on helping you emphasize when you're doing it and how you're doing it and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for. Oh, I still have a lot of growing up in God to do along those lines. Now, verse 30 to 33, he then shifts gears a little and goes back to something we talked about earlier about God commanding and revoking. Remember when he had to adjust on the fly because of people's misuse of agency? I'm going to switch out some, some mission companions and so on uh, because it's still got to work. And just, but people are making decisions that they haven't learned the first step of obedience. So he says in verse 30, Who am I that made man, saith the Lord, that will hold him guiltless, that obeys not my commandments? So we're back to stage one, learning to obey. And who am I? I, I love the way he puts that. I created you and for a purpose. And my purpose, my work and glory is to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. It's to make you into someone like me. It's not just to provide you with life. It's to help you master a lifestyle of righteousness. So do you, did you really think I was going to create you without caring about your obedience to my commandments? Yeah, I love how he puts it. Who am I that made man that will hold him guiltless? Creation is serious stuff. So, of course, I'm going to take your obedience seriously. 31, who am I, he asks again, saith the Lord, that have promised and have not fulfilled. Now it gets a little more personal. We talk, I was talking about your obedience to my commandments. Well, maybe you're wondering about my obedience to my own commandments, or in this case, my covenants, since I promised you incredible blessings in the land of Zion. And you showed up and you start wondering, well, are they here? Where was that red carpet I envisioned? Well, verse 32, I command, that's the first step, and men obey not. That, unfortunately, is sometimes the second stage in the process. So, what's the third stage? God has to adjust on the fly. I revoke, and as a result, fourth stage, they receive not the blessing. So you see how that all kind of uh, rolls out in verse 32? I give the commandment, and if they don't obey it, then I have to revoke the promises that, that were attached to obedience, and therefore, they don't receive the promised blessing. We'll see it taught clearly in section 82, that I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. I've given the commandment, and if you obey it, I, will, I hold myself responsible to give you the blessing that was attached to it. But if you do not what I say, you have no promise. That's the other part. If you don't obey, then I revoke the blessings and you don't receive them. That's just what a covenant is. If it's a two-way promise, this is kind of the contractual relationship. You do your part, I do mine. That's just how it works. But verse 33, the problem is, then the person who wasn't obeying, wasn't keeping up their side of things, then they say in their hearts, oh, this is not the work of the Lord, for his promises are not fulfilled. You see the conclusion they've reached? But woe unto such, for their reward lurketh beneath and not from above. Again, so much of this is based on our perspective, our, our attitude. And what are they coming away with? God isn't true to his word. He said Zion would be here, and it isn't. So he lied to us. He promised if I kept the commandments, I would prosper in the land. And I'm not prospering in the land. So what's the deal? 
without realizing, oh wait, if I keep the commandments, have I been? Have I been keeping my end of the bargain? Because if God isn't keeping his end, which one of us was the weak link in the chain? Again, that's part of that commanding and revoking, part of that adjusting on the fly. Other responsibilities will be given. Someone else will be called to, to fill that vacant position. But the blessings that were promised to the person who was originally given that call, they can't come. And again, do not blame God for that. Look inward. Now, with all that in mind, hoping that you've, you trust me, that I do keep my word when you keep yours, let me give you a little bit more instruction. Verse 34, now I give unto you further directions concerning this land. Remember back in verse 1, I want to talk about you and I want to talk about this land. Well, I've been talking about you a lot of this revelation. Now let's talk about this land. 35, it is wisdom in me, here's more wisdom, that my servant Martin Harris should be an example unto the church in laying his monies before the bishop of the church. Now, it's been a while since we got to hang out with Martin Harris. Have we forgotten about him? He's still a faithful member of the church and still has money to give. This always seems to be his role. Uh, we need to be able to publish the Book of Mormon. Martin, you got any money? Uh, we need to establish Zion. Martin, you got any money? Uh, the successful farmer, uh, he's, he's just good with temporal things. And like we read back in section 19, Martin, don't covet your own property. Remember that? It's like, wait, if it isn't coveting, wanting something that doesn't belong to you, how can I covet what does belong to me? Oh, you're implying that it doesn't actually belong to me after all. Yes, Martin, that's exactly what I'm implying. And I don't know if Martin is still struggling. Well, I do know a little uh, that he's still struggling with this, this self-covetousness. The lack of, of self-sacrifice and generosity that consecration requires. So, Martin, please be an example unto the church. Be one, have the initiative. Be one of the first to come forth to the bishop and lay it all out. Help set the table for the Feast of Fat Things by providing some of the ingredients for the dinner. God has been generous with you. Be generous to him and to his children. Set an example. Lay out the money. Verse 36, Also, this is a law unto every man that cometh unto this land, to receive an inheritance. And he shall do with his monies according as the law directs. I wonder if he is implying something there in the middle of 36. You came to the land to receive an inheritance. I'm here. What do I get? And what he's suggesting here is don't come and ask what you're going to get. First come and give to the bishop all that you can offer. Live according to the law of consecration. Lay your money before the bishop of the church. Then an inheritance will come. Reminds me of JFK's famous statement that ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Don't come to the bishop and ask what he can give you. Come to the bishop and ask uh, what you can offer. Actually, don't even ask. Just come and offer, right? The power is in you. You are an agent unto yourself. Love this. Then in verse 37, it is wisdom also that there should be lands purchased in independence for the place of the storehouse and also for the house of the printing. Remember, Edward Partridge and Sidney Gilbert are going to run the storehouse. W.W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery are going to run the printing office. Well, we need to purchase land. 
Purchase it. Live the law of the land. The law of God is to be able to offer these things and have consecrations and stewardships and so on. But until he comes, whose right it is, the second coming of Shiloh, then we need to live the law of the land, which means getting title and deed and purchasing land. We'll purchase it here in independence. Verse 38, other directions concerning my servant Martin Harris shall be given him of the spirit that he may receive his inheritance as seemeth him good. So Martin, yes, you need to be an agent unto yourself as well. It'll be given, the directions will come through the Spirit. Don't expect an institutional revelation every time. Learn to get individual revelation yourself. And you'll receive an inheritance, as seemeth you good. Again, part of that agency versus inspiration. Verse 39, And let him repent of his sins, for he seeketh the praise of the world. Martin, ah, See, you still are struggling with that vanity. You care too much about what people think. That's what got you into trouble with 116 pages. I love how patient the Lord is in working with us in our long-term flaws. Those weaknesses that we can't overcome with just a quick act of repentance. Where we really have to endure or undergo this mighty change of heart and really alter our personality. In important ways. Verse 40, also let my servant William W. Phelps stand in the office to which I have appointed him and receive his inheritance in the land. Like I said, he's the one that's going to be running that house of printing we saw previously. 41, also he hath need to repent, for I the Lord am not well pleased with him, for he seeketh to excel and he is not sufficiently meek before me. So Martin, you've done amazing things. You've got amazing things ahead, but you've got some stuff to repent of. W.W. Phelps, you've done amazing things, will do amazing things, and have things to repent of too. Interesting the way it's described, he seeketh to excel. Is that a problem? I loved a talk given, I can't remember by what general authority. It was a member of the 70 years ago where he kept talking about being ambitious for Christ. I'd never heard that phrase before, and it really stuck in my head to be ambitious for Christ, to want to excel for his sake. That's the more used would I be prayer that we should all seek to offer. But here for W.W. Phelps, are you seeking to excel for your sake instead of for the sake of others? Are you seeking to excel for your glory rather than for the glory of God? Remember throughout this revelation, we're trying to purify motives change attitudes and not just actions. The actions of Martin and, and W.W. Phelps were positive. The attitudes needed to change. And so much of it is going to boil down to meekness, as we saw at the end of 41, our humility. Remember, that's the pattern God established last week. Keep my ordinances, follow those checkpoints along the path, but be contrite, be humble, be meek. Now, in verse 42 and 43, again, famous passage, he goes from the zoom-in specifics on what Martin Harris and William Phelps need to repent of to the zoom-out. Let's talk about repentance in general, shall we? Important phrases, he says, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. Now, not only is that passage incredibly merciful, it's downright miraculous because God is omniscient. 
He knows everything. And yet, what has he just promised us? That I'm willing to exercise a little selective amnesia. That I can choose, even in my omniscience, I can choose to forget certain things. Namely, sins that you have repented of. They're off the record. They're as if they never happened. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I'll forget about them? Expunged from the record? Forgotten by omniscience himself? That's amazing. Now, some have wondered, well, then why do I remember them? But the more we think about it, I think that becomes clear. If I didn't remember them, then chances are I would do something to remind myself, namely, repeat the sin. And sadly, I wouldn't have the, the, the added contrition of, I did it again. I need to trust more in the atonement of Christ. I need to exercise more faith in his preventative power and not just his curative power. We would just think that that was a, a one-time mistake like the last time was, or the time before that, or the time before that. Now, it is a good thing for our sake that we do remember our sins so that we do a better job of avoiding the repetition and so that we re remember our gratitude for God. If I forgot my past sins and my past forgiveness, then I would probably forget just how much gratitude I feel to the Lord for having washed those sins away. Now, I do not want to, I don't want to forget my sins, but I am so grateful that the Lord forgets them. In fact, the way Ezekiel puts it, he says, they will not even be mentioned unto you. That's a relief. Can you imagine? And why not mention? Because he, he chooses not to remember them. To remember. I've said this before. Member as a verb is one we don't use very often. But we do use it in words like dismember. If, if body parts are members of the body, then to dismember is to separate body parts. Sorry, it's kind of graphic. But then to remember, if re means again, and member is, is, is putting body parts, then to, to dismember is to separate body parts, and to remember is to reattach them, to put them all back together into a whole. Well, I'm so grateful that God doesn't remember my sins, to put it back together and have it staring me in the face to haunt me all over again. Ezekiel, he doesn't mention them to you. Can you imagine Judgment Day? And you're standing there before the bar of God and he says, you know, you're forgiven, you're clean. You're worthy of a celestial inheritance. But man, I was worried about you back in the day. Remember that one time that you, and we're like, ugh. He says, yeah, you, he, don't worry, don't, wipe those, those looks off your faces. Um, put your jaw back in place. He repented and I forgave him, it's fine. Or like that one time that you, and you're like, <gasps> no, there's none of that. In fact, if there's anyone that's feeling a little uh, uh, shocked by our positive judgment, it's going to be us uh, as we approach the bar and say, but God, I, we both know that I, I don't deserve exaltation. We, I'm not worthy of the celestial kingdom. And he look, he's the one that now looks at us confusedly. And like, what are you talking about? You're in. There's, everything's fine. And he doesn't mention it. He doesn't choose to remember it. 
And we, it's almost like we're bringing, dredging up those bad memories and saying, but no, God, remember the time? And he just looks at us with this kind of quizzical stare, like, no, I, I don't remember that at all. And I've got a pretty good memory. I mean, omniscience and all. You can kind of picture some chuckles in, in, the, in the congregation, in the courtroom, right? And, there, and you can picture the Lord kind of looking behind our backs and telling this, like, I don't know what's wrong with them, um, but they're making stuff up. That, my memory, it's, it's not in there anywhere. And honestly, who are they going to believe? Who, who's the courtroom going to believe? Us or God? It is so merciful of him to choose to remember them no more even as reminders of his kindness to us. That's something that's left to us to remember proactively. And then in 43, if 42 is the promise of repentance and forgiveness, then 43 is the process of repentance, where he says, By this ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Now, that phrase is so important because it establishes the two ingredients to this recipe for repentance. To confess and to forsake. I think it was Elder Maxwell that described confession as the scouring of the soul. To kind of loosen up the dirt and grease and grime so that then the living water can wash us clean. To confess. And to forsake so that we don't Oh, speaking of graphic descriptions, return as a dog to its vomit or as a sow to her wallowing in the mire. Don't remind me of sins that I have chosen to forget. Don't remember them yourself. Don't put back in the, the situation and, and the trigger and the desire and the temptation and the weakness. Don't, don't remember those things so that they occur again. Bury the sword and leave it deep in the earth. Appreciate the white as wool. And don't bring back the crimson. Forsake your sin. The Lord will have some strong things to say about that in section 82 later on as well, and former sins returning. But the more I've pondered this principle about confessing and forsaking, the and has become all important to me. Both halves are required. And, and see if this holds true for you. Now, the best definition of saint that I'm familiar with, uh, Nelson Mandela and Elder Renlund repeated this, is a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying, right? So we're all saints and sinners, as long as we keep trying. We make mistakes, we repent, we seek forgiveness. We're, why did I need to repent? Because I'm a sinner. Why do I want to repent? Because I'm a saint. Remember Martin Luther's, simul, pec, uh, simul justus et peccator, I'm simultaneously just, there's the saint side, and sinner. There's the sinner side, obviously. So what's happening here if we need to both confess and forsake? Now let's take that definition of saint and sinner. And if you had to pick just one of those two that kind of defines you, which would you choose? Because the choice you're about to make will help you decide how you see yourself. Remember, uh, the natural man is an enemy to God, but the, 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 the non-natural man, the spiritual man, is God's friend, right? Put off the natural man, become a saint through the atonement of Christ. 
uh, are we naturally depraved? Or I'll put it this way, are we inherently evil or good as human beings? And the answer is kind of yes, which means there's a contrary to be proven here. Uh, I'm both saint and sinner. I'm both uh, Eustace at peccator. I'm both depraved and divine. It's just a matter of which side of my identity do I really identify with? Now, some of us beat ourselves up all the time and picture ourselves as the ultimate sinner, and I'll never be a saint. And others of us focus more on our saintliness, that I keep trying and I'm doing well, and we minimize the sinner side of us. And like I said, we're both. And I need us to think hard and be introspective here. If you had to pick only one, which side do you more identify with? The saint or the sinner? Am I a good person? Eh, sometimes make some mistakes. Or am I a bad person? That, oh, rarely I have a good day. Because here's the fascinating thing to me about confessing and forsaking. If you consider yourself the sinner side, then you have a harder time forsaking your sin. Because you just assume pessimistically that you're just going to fall back into it anyway. But on the flip side, if you consider yourself a good guy, the, the saint side, then typically you have a much more difficult time confessing your sins. Because it's an admission to someone else that you're not quite what you picture yourself to be. Now, that's what's amazing to me. Like I said, though, that's what makes it hard. But if the opposite side is hard, it's because the other side is easy. The irony here is often it's the so-called sinners that have an easier time confessing. Well, I'm not telling the bishop anything he doesn't already know. He knows I'm a sinner, and here I am again, bishop, to tell you the same thing I'm struggling with. But on the flip side, the so-called good guy, the saint, has an easier time forsaking because that's not who I am. I'm better than that. I slipped, but I'm not going to let it happen again. And because of the way they view themselves, they often have enough faith in Christ's enabling power to resist the temptation that they fell into. Now, again, nobody's perfect on either side, but I'm amazed at that. I don't know which to ask yourself. You could ask, which is easier for me, to confess or to forsake? Or you could ask the reverse, which is harder for me? Or maybe they're just both hard for all of us. But I, I think there's something worth just wrestling with about that passage. So those who are, are good at confessing and not so good at forsaking, turn to the Lord for his enabling power, his preventative grace. And those who are better at forsaking and not so good at confessing. Well, there's that meekness that was required of W.W. W. Phelps. There's that avoiding the praise of the world that was Martin Harris's concern. So sinners, admit that you're saints and you really can forsake your sins. And saints, admit that you're sinners and confess every sin to God and major sins to priesthood authority. The confession will humble you the forsaking will exalt you. It, it's just this amazing reversal of how we feel about ourselves in positive dimensions. 
That, like I said, is a principle worth pondering. Now, verse 44, and this stretches basically to the end of this revelation, is going to be more of the instructions on the land. He's taught some really important big picture principles. Now let's get down to nitty gritty. Verse 44, Now verily I say concerning the residue of the elders of my church. These are the ones we met back in section 52, the two by two, all those pairs, the companionships that the Lord put together to head to the land of Zion. Some go speedily, others by way of Detroit, others don't go in other people's tracks and don't build on others' foundations. Just start at the same starting point, end at the same ending point, but then cover as much space as you can on the way to bless people in your journey. Well, for you elders, the time has not yet come for many years for them to receive their inheritance in this land, except they desire it through the prayer of faith, only as it shall be appointed unto them of the Lord. Now that's an interesting passage. He's basically saying to the missionaries, you're called to go on a mission, and then you're called to go home. For some, it's the first call that's hard. For many, I would say that's probably for everybody. Once you, <laughs> once you get to Zion and realize there's a lot of building to do, right? But by the end, it's like, no, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here forever. Look what I've built and look how it's built me. I, that's what, that was me. I, I just wanted to extend my mission indefinitely. But there comes a time where the Lord says, no, 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 not for many years. Because there's still stuff for you to do back in Ohio. There's still another non-missionary life that you, non-full-time missionary life that you need to lead. So it, important for these elders, this, the residue, the time hasn't come. It's not going to come for many years. Because back in Ohio, there's still a temple you need to build so you can be endowed with power from on high. So go home. And that's important for every uh, missionary near the end of their service to, to recall. Eventually, yes, you'll all come back and there will be lands of inheritance here. But it's not going to be at least until 1838. That's when the two church headquarters will officially become one, as everyone's supposed to gather to Missouri. But then the end of this verse is just this interesting exception. Yeah, go home, except they desire it. Hmm. And if you have desires to serve, you are called to the work. I guess if you have desires to extend, you can have that work extended. You have desires to settle here in the land of Zion permanently. Again, it's going to be the residence of some who are called to serve and stay. And if others weren't called to serve and stay, but they choose to stay themselves, okay, that's, that's fine. But notice, it better be through the prayer of faith and not just a desire to... Again, there's a wrong way of getting in on the ground level. It's like, ooh, if I'm here first and I can get a large inheritance and then subdivide it and sell it to later people, ooh, land speculation, which was the name of the game in Frontier America. We're going to see major problems with that back in Ohio and some here in Missouri as well. It's one of the causes of the, the apostasy after the Kirtland Safety Society Bank collapses in 1837. There's, there's some, some problems here. There are people who seek to excel, and they're not ambitious for Christ. They're ambitious for themselves. So yours better be a prayer of faith and self-sacrifice and consecration, not some desire to get ahead yourself. And, as it says at the end of 44, it has to be appointed unto them of the Lord. And who does the Lord work through? His servant, Joseph Smith, his servant, Edward Partridge, his agent, Sidney Gilbert, it, there's individual and institutional combined here in 44. 
Yes, it's your side. There's the agency side. In fact, it's really interesting to see this as the opposite side of the contrary of what we saw back in 26 and 27 and 28 and 29 about initiative. But there's also authorization. You understand the balance here? If we only dealt with the first side, my fear is that there's going to be a bunch of members of the ward that get so inspired that, hey, the power is in us, and I'm going to call myself to these callings, and I'm going to do this and do that, and I, who cares about what the bishop thinks? <sighs> Careful. Uh, you've corrected and overcorrected. You've overswung the pendulum, if that's the case. There still is an order in the kingdom. There is still a hierarchy amidst all of this democracy. There is still institutional revelation amidst all this individual revelation. Right, Oliver Cowdery? Right, Hiram Page? Right, so many of these saints that need to discern between seducing spirits and commandments of men and true spirits and what truly mutually edifies. This is what's going on in church history at this time. And I'm, to me, it's fascinating to see the balance here in section 58 between be an agent unto yourself, but simultaneously be an obedient object when when leaders are called to help direct the work. Yes, seek things, your desires through the prayer of faith, but also make sure things are appointed unto you by the Lord and by his authorized servants. Because in, in historical perspective, the saints kind of jumped the gun. There were some that weren't just zealous to be agents, but were overzealous to... to I'll put it this way, the, the, the settling in Zion was supposed to be line upon line. It was gradual growth. It was purchasing lands of inheritance. It was following the laws of the land. That's why so many of these elders were told, yes, come down to help, but then go home. Because if you get back to Ohio where you're a little better established and you can keep working and keep progressing, keep increasing on your stewardship, then you have more to contribute to the bishop's storehouse, which can then go to Missouri to, to purchase more land for the gradual gathering of the saints. It's, it's got to be order here. But a lot of the saints back in Ohio and elsewhere, wait, Zion's in Missouri? It's not here? Well, I want to be first in line dibs on the land of inheritance. And so they are rushing, kind of almost jumping in line. Before they are called, they choose themselves. And worst of all, before they become Zion, they rush to be in Zion. Their address outpaces their attitude. Their location outpaces their lifestyle. And no wonder it doesn't become a land of Zion in that generation. This causes major problems, dilemmas for Joseph Smith and for Edward Partridge. It's, what are we, we going to do? There's too many people coming in. We can't afford to, to settle them all. They've all come demanding stewardships, but there hasn't been enough consecration to lead the way. I mean, this goes back to verse 36. They're demanding to receive an inheritance, but they haven't given their monies as the law directs. And so much of the production side is going to be back in Ohio so that the consumption side can take place in Missouri, at least until we have enough stewardships that they can be self-sufficient, self-sustaining. It's a real struggle here. And it's one of the principal reasons that Zion doesn't quite work the way it was intended to. This was... I mean, what did we learn back in verse 
32, the Lord commanded, men didn't obey, God revoked, and we didn't receive the blessing. And sadly, who do we blame? God instead of ourselves. So back to 44, and now moving forward, verse 45, Behold, they shall push the people together from the ends of the earth. You're not going to stay here in Zion and just wait for things to happen. You've got to begin the gathering yourself. You go back to Ohio, keep producing uh, from your stewardship, be ambitious for Christ, consecrate that so that the bishop in Zion has, has material to use to be able to settle people on their inheritance. And in the meantime, your missions will continue so you can push the people together from the ends of the earth. That's a great visual image of the gathering. In fact, it's my favorite, one of my favorite symbols of the baptismal font in the temple. Because it is, that baptismal font is on the backs of 12 oxen. What do we put on our backs? Burdens. Especially if you are a beast of burden like an oxen. What is our burden? What's our responsibility? What, what is the duty that we should be shouldering? The cleansing of humanity. There's, there's baptism. We are bringing salvation through the atonement of Jesus Christ to all of God's children. All of them. That's why these oxen are facing out in every direction to go to the ends of the earth. And what are on the heads of these oxen? Horns. Now, next time you go do baptisms for the dead, look at the horns on the oxen. Have you ever tried to, to gather animals, to herd a herd of cattle? I haven't, okay? I'm from L.A. <laughs> no, no, no livestock going on there. But if you think about what a cattle prod does, where there's some kind of pokey stick, for example, and you're just trying to, to shepherd these animals to come together, to herd them into, into an assembly. Well, what if you're not a rancher or a cowboy or a herdsman? What if you're one of the herd itself, but you are tasked to help lead the herd in the direction it needs to go? Well, are cattle provided with their own built-in cattle prod? Yeah. It's their horn. And picture the leader of the herd using his horns to, to poke and goad and shepherd the rest of the herd together or in the direction of their final destination. There's actually a fascinating passage in Deuteronomy 33 where each of the tribes of Israel are given a blessing, sort of a semi-patriarchal blessing of sorts. Uh, one of them is to the tribe of Ephraim, and it is used or personified as a bullock as an ox. And according to this prophetic blessing, they are told, his glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. Now, do you understand what those horns are for? Unicorn is a bad translation, by the way. It's, it's just another kind of cattle. But you're using these horns to, to shepherd, to goad, to push to gather. And that's what these missionaries are meant to do. Push the people together from the ends of the earth. That is the burden we bear. Then 46, wherefore assemble yourselves together. There's the sense of the gathering again. And they who are not appointed to stay in this land, then let them preach the gospel in the regions round about. And after that, let them return to their homes. That's the marching orders for the generality of these elders, the residue of the elders we saw back in 44. You came here on a mission, now go home on a mission. The mission continues. 
keep assembling saints, keep preaching the gospel in the regions roundabout, preach on the way there, preach on the way home, but do go home. 47, let them preach by the way and bear testimony of the truth in all places. Call upon the rich, the high, and the low, and the poor to repent. Remember we saw that sense of bearing testimony and bearing record? Here's the brochure. How are you advertising the land of Zion? Is it such that people will want to come to the feast? 48. Let them build up churches inasmuch as the inhabitants of the earth will repent. So temporary gathering places, since it's not time for everyone to gather to one place quite yet. 49. Let there be an agent appointed by the voice of the church unto the church in Ohio to receive monies to purchase lands in Zion. See again how this is all supposed to work? Ohio will be the producer and Zion will be the consumer for a while until Zion can become self-sustaining. That's actually largely how fast offerings work in the church today or uh, contributions to the general missionary fund. Are there places where the church is well enough established? And Ohio is better established, even though the church is young everywhere, Ohio is better established than Missouri at least, that they can be a net producer of these things, since there are other parts of the world that are still net consumers. That's okay, that's what consecration is, right? Uh, the rich giving to the poor, and the, not equivalence, but equality is the goal. And eventually, that helps the poor become self-sufficient as all are blessed with the riches of eternity. So you'll have these agents receiving the money from the church in Ohio to go purchase land in Missouri, in Zion. This will allow for gradual growth, for feasible and sensible settlement. This is what the Lord is envisioning from the beginning. But like I said, that's not how it ends up happening because of greed and ambition and overzealousness. People with too much agent and not enough object while others were too much object and not enough agent. Striking balances, finding Goldilocks zones, proving contraries is always hard work. But that's the aim. Then in verse 50, I give unto my servant Sidney Rigdon a commandment, that he shall write a description of the land of Zion, and a statement of the will of God, as it shall be made known by the Spirit unto him, and an epistle and subscription to be presented unto all the churches to obtain monies, to be put into the hands of the bishop, of himself or the agent, as seemeth him good, or as he shall direct, to purchase lands for an inheritance for the children of God. Now those two verses don't seem very theological, but it's actually fascinating what Sidney Rigdon is being asked to do. Write a description of the land of Zion. Remember at the beginning of this revelation, some of you will be there to build the foundation and to bear testimony and to bear record of the land of Zion. I keep talking about this as a brochure. Well, almost literally, Sidney Rigdon does produce a brochure of sorts. He writes a description of the land of Zion. And verse 51, it becomes an epistle. Let's send it forth through the bishops and the agents as subscription so that people can, can read this description of the land of Zion in all of its glowing terms, all of its focus on on the spiritual eye rather than the natural eye, since the natural eye is, isn't going to be very convincing, uh, all of its view of the future rather than the present. See it through the eye of faith. Describe it through the eye of faith. Give credence to the design of God. And talk more about the ideal than the present real. Send it out as an epistle. Send it out as a subscription so that people can be inspired by, by what Zion can become and can then contribute to it. 
It's really fascinating that Sidney is, asked, is tasked with this and he ends up doing it. But notice how it's described at the end of verse 50. It has to be done as the Spirit makes it known unto you. And it's really interesting. We'll see this in two weeks. There's a passage in section 63 where Sidney has produced his, his description, his epistle, his subscription, and he gives it to Joseph and Joseph reads it and he's all, uh, no, this isn't good enough. The passage in section 63 says that Sidney grieved the spirit. He struggled with some pride and some over-independence. And, and again, everybody does. Martin Harris, here's some things for you to repent of. Uh, W.W. Phelps, here's some things for you to repent of. Later on, Sidney, here's some things for you to repent of. We all have our issues. But Sidney's first attempt, because it wasn't by the Spirit, his Spirit was a little off. It interfered with the Spirit of the Lord. And so what he wrote first to describe Zion, no, that, that's not acceptable to the Lord. Try again. And he does. His second attempt proves better than the first. And people can read it. See through the eye of faith what Zion will become and decide to offer their all to help lay that foundation. To purchase lands, to build printing offices and bishop storehouses and ultimately a temple. You see why it's so important? The, the, the attitude with which we describe the things of God? Amazing what Sidney's involved in here. Then 52, Verily I say unto you, the Lord willeth that the disciples and the children of men should open their hearts, even to purchase this whole region of country, as soon as time will permit. Now be patient. Don't run faster than you have strength. And unfortunately, people are running fast to Missouri when they're not called to go yet. But let's do it line upon line, precept upon precept. Let's do it gradual growth, sensible settlement. Let's do the laws of the land. Let's purchase it with title and deed and everything else. That's going to require a lot of people with open purses and open wallets. And here, what he's asking for first is open hearts. Become Zion so we can build it. Then 53, behold, here is wisdom. He keeps saying that. We've got to be wise in this. Let them do this lest they receive none inheritance, save it be by the shedding of blood. And we know how that ends up. There is shedding of blood in Missouri. There are mob attacks, there are saint retaliations, there, there are, there's an extermination order. Blood is shed to try to gain or to retain an inheritance. And here the Lord is suggesting it doesn't have to be this way. If you'll be wise, if you'll be patient, if you'll be obedient, if you'll be humble. Now verse 54 Again, inasmuch as there is land obtained, let there be workmen sent forth of all kinds unto this land to labor for the saints of God. This is part of consecration also. We're not just consecrating our property so land can be purchased. We're consecrating our talents so that land can be improved. If you're a carpenter, you have gifts, skill sets to contribute. If you're a blacksmith, if, if you're a banker, if you're a printer, any of these things, it's all hands on deck. If we are trying to create the city of God, there are all kinds of responsibilities to help that city function. And so all of you workmen of all kinds, this goes back to the spiritual gifts we studied in section 46. You have something to contribute. All of us do. May we give it. Then 55, let all these things be done in order. 
Remember, wisdom keeps coming up. Well, now it's wisdom and order. Elder Maxwell gave a great talk by that name once. And let the privileges of the lands be made known from time to time by the bishop or the agent of the church. The privileges of the land. Speaking of glowing reports. Verse 56, let the work of the gathering be not in haste nor by flight, but let it be done as it shall be counseled by the elders of the church at the conferences, according to the knowledge which they receive from time to time. Now, is that verse making sense? Why it can't be by haste or by flight? We can't get ahead of what we can afford to do. Slow and steady, we'll win the race here. And then there's this combination of how you counsel together and the knowledge that you receive from time to time. There's the vertical, let me give you revelation. And then there's the horizontal, you guys need to discuss things and counsel together. There's the agency, here's the inspiration, it all needs to coincide. Then 57, let my servant Sidney Rigdon consecrate and dedicate this land and the spot for the temple unto the Lord. There's like nothing there and they're already talking about temple plots, amazing. 58, let a conference meeting be called and after that let my servant Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith Jr. return and also Oliver Cowdery with them to accomplish the residue of the work which I have appointed unto them in their own land, and the residue as shall be ruled by the conferences. See, Joseph and Sidney, you're not even done with the Joseph Smith translation yet. And there's a temple to be built back in Ohio. There's, there's work to be done all over. So Joseph and Sidney and Oliver, you head back home. Uh, Edward and Sidney and others, uh, Sidney uh, Gilbert, this, that is, they'll be staying here in the land of Zion. It's going to be tricky. We're going to be having two church headquarters for a while and trying to keep things going in both locations. But trust me, this will all work, if you follow my counsel, that is. And then 59, let no man return from this land except he bear record by the way of that which he knows and most assuredly believes. So we're preaching the gospel on the way and we're preaching the gospel on the way home. I don't know about you, but I probably did better on the second than I did on the first. Uh, having had all those years, the two years of experience preaching the gospel, preaching on the way home was a bit easier. When I was home and the air conditioner uh, repairman, air conditioning repairman came and, and he was out working and I was, a, you know, fresh off the plane return missionary and I brought him out a, a glass of water. This is hot Southern California summer. And I gave him a drink and he's like, oh man, that was really nice of you. And I said, well, I know what it's like to be outside in the hot sun working all day. And he's like, really? What, what, what do you do? And I just kind of smiled like, <laughs> that's exactly what I hope you'd ask. And then I talked to him about my mission. Or when I went to get my first haircut again from the old barber that I'd been to years before as a teenager. And I just said to him, oh man, I am so glad to have a good haircut again. It's been two years since I've had a real haircut. And he was like, what? Yeah, where have you been for the last two years? And again, I smiled. That's exactly what I hope you'd ask. And I could talk to him about my mission. Uh, again, bear record on the way, bear record on the way home of what you know and what you believe. I love that he talks of both. Remember those two degrees of the spiritual gift? To some it is given to know, to others it is given to believe. But hey, it's eternal life for everybody as long as they're faithful. If you can bear witness of what you know, then do it. If you can bear witness of what you believe, notice I didn't say what you just believe. Oh, belief is a beautiful thing. Then bear testimony of your belief as well. And then 60, let that which has been bestowed upon Ziba Peterson, he was one of those original Lamanite missionaries, remember, be taken from him. Oh, we got command and now we get revoke. And let him stand as a member in the church and labor with his own hands with the brethren until he is sufficiently chastened for all his sins 
for he confesseth them not, and he thinketh to hide them. Zyba Peterson was a good guy. He Again, one of those original Lamanite missionaries, but maybe he was too good in his own eyes to be willing to admit that he wasn't as good as he wanted people to believe. He may have been better at forsaking sin than confessing them. Here, Zyba, you need to confess. Don't hide them. It's so interesting that in his in his attempt to hide his sin, what happens? They get remembered to the whole church. And it's canonized for crying out loud. Here we are, almost 200 years later, still reading about Ziba Peterson's sin. Sorry, Ziba. As opposed to what we learned in verse 42, if you're willing to unhide your sins to God and, when necessary, to priesthood authority, then what happens to it? It doesn't get remembered it's remembered no more. I love the, the, the connection between verse 42 and verse 60. If you hide your sins, God brings them out visibly. If you bring out your sins in humble confession, then God hides them permanently, even from his own omniscient mind. It's amazing how that works. Verse 61 then let the residue of the elders of this church who are coming to this land, some of whom are exceedingly blessed, even above measure, also hold a conference upon this land. After all, I am calling the rich and the high, not just the poor and the low. Some are bringing uh, gifts to offer, uh, consecration to lay before the bishop. Verse 62, let my servant Edward Partridge direct the conference, which shall be held by them. That'll be part of his responsibility as bishop in Zion. 63, let them also return, preaching the gospel by the way, bearing record of the things which are revealed unto them. This should sound familiar to us by now. And then 64, for verily the sound must go forth from this place unto all the world and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel must be preached unto every creature with signs following them that believe. There's the oxen going out across the earth to, to goad and gather us all. And put it all in context of time and infuse it with a sense of urgency. Not by flight, not by haste, but slow and steady, but also with, a, with an eye to, to the ultimate goal. The revelation ends, Behold, the Son of Man cometh. Amen. All that we've discussed about you and about this land, keep it in context of the second coming. It is the marriage feast of the Lamb, after all. The marriage supper of the King's Son. Feast of fat things? Oh yeah. You can already hear it cooking. You can smell it coming in from the kitchen. It's time for us to go and gather. Now 58 then turns into section 59. About a week has passed since the previous one, but also something important has taken place, namely the funeral of Polly Knight. Yeah, the Knight family, the Colesville Saints, Joseph Knight Sr., who we met so long ago. His wife was so faithful, mother of Newell Knight, leader of the Colesville Saints. She was not in good health as they began to leave a second time and abandon all that they had to be able to gather, not just the first time to Ohio, but now the second time to Missouri. But Mother Knight, I just want to go to Zion. I will do anything that God asks of me. She was amazing. 
And as she's as they're on their way, she was determined to make it to Zion. In fact, she was she, her health was deteriorating so quickly, and Newell Knight didn't know exactly what he to expect on the western edge of the state that he actually purchased lumber for his mother's coffin along the way. There's a pragmatist for you. Uh, just in case, Mom, sorry, I've, I'm not trying to be morbid here, but I, I just want to be prepared that if, if worse comes to worse. And she was okay with that. And worse did come to worse. Well, not quite. She arrived at the land of Zion. She made it according to her deepest desire. But after about two weeks, she passed away. And her son, unfortunately, had to use that lumber for its intended purpose. Well, the following day, one day after the, the funeral, Joseph Smith receives this revelation. I mean, do you remember how section 58 began and it's forewarning and foreboding about much tribulation? And as it said, if you keep my commandments, whether in life or in death, well, now we've had our first in-death experience. And what does the Lord say? So beautiful how this revelation begins. Behold, blessed, saith the Lord, are they who have come up unto this land with an eye single to my glory, according to my commandments. That describes all of you Colesville saints. It describes the Knight family. It describes Polly. In verse 2, even closer to her situation. For those that live, that's all of you survivors, shall inherit the land. And those that die, that's you, Mother Knight, shall rest from all their labors, and their works shall follow them, and they shall receive a crown in the mansions of my Father, which I have prepared for them. Yes, there are earthly buildings to be built here, and you who live shall inherit what you construct. But you who die, your mansion has already been prepared. Your crown awaits you. Your labor will follow you. After much tribulation come the comes the glory. After much labor, oh, the labor and its results will follow you. This is such a magnificent eulogy. I'm sure some were spoken the day before, but to receive one from the Lord directly, so beautiful. Verse 3, Yea, blessed are they whose feet stand upon the land of Zion who have obeyed my gospel, for they shall receive for their reward the good things of the earth, and it shall bring forth in its strength. The feast of fat things has to come from somewhere, after all. And what else does this crown consist of? What, what else is involved in this reward? Verse 4 is so powerful. They shall also be crowned with and then notice the, the list. These are jewels on the crown that God gives the faithful. They will be crowned with, first, blessings from above. Well, that seems fitting. But two, and with commandments, not a few. And three, with revelations in their time, they that are faithful and diligent before me. Now, I'm amazed by that list. The first, again, seems obvious. If you're faithful, you'll be crowned with blessings. The third is an interesting one. You'll be crowned with revelation. You'll know what to do. You're acting on the instructions you've been given. You're obedient. And so, of course, I'll give you more revelation. But that, that middle one, crowned with commandments, not a few, 
It's almost like, yeah, I, I thought I, I had endured all those commandments. I mean, I kept them after all. Uh, can I be done with them? Oh, well, that shows that you didn't quite understand the purpose of commandments yet. Maybe you're still back in section 58, struggling to graduate from obedient object unto proactive agent, since you are keeping the commandments, but slothfully. Receiving them, but with a hesitant heart. How do we make that paradigm shift? And that's, I think, really what he's asking, where we change our perspective so dramatically that another commandment does feel like another jewel on our crown. Now, if you want to read an amazing talk, then go back shortly before David A. Bednar was called to the Quorum of the Twelve. And soon-to-be Elder Bednar at the time was then President Bednar of BYU-Idaho. He gave a talk at BYU-Idaho called In a State of Happiness. I still remember where I was when I first read this talk. I was doing a one-year rotation on the faculty at BYU in the religion department. And I was walking across campus. I can't remember why I had to walk across campus, but I was trying to use my time wisely. And I was reading a talk from David A. Bednar. That's right, I was teaching a class on living prophets. And I was trying to read everything I possibly could from, from all of these prophets. And I didn't know Elder Bednar very well. He hadn't been in the Quorum of the Twelve very long, and so I didn't have enough conference talks to really understand him. So I went back and tried to read every, every BYU, devotional, BYU Idaho devotional I could find. And there, it's a treasure trove. I mean, I fell in love with Elder Bednar from that experience. But this particular talk, I was reading with occasionally looking up so I wouldn't bump into anything or anyone as I walked across campus. And I, this talk was life-changing. It was paradigm-shifting for me as he described the, the inseparable connection between obedience and happiness. The title suggests that he was there to talk about happiness, and he was, but he couched it in terms of obedience, since it is only by obeying commandments that we have access to the happiness that God promises the faithful. Now in that talk, he, he, at length, he talks about the difference between what we might call forced obedience and willing obedience. Remember, we're starting to see that, that, that gradual growth back in section 58. You've proven that you're obedient. You will do, uh, for, if it's forced obedience or compliance to, to commandment, you've mastered that, Colesville Saints. Can you now be agents unto yourselves since the power is in you? Will you bring to pass much righteousness? Will you be proactive? Well, that's a whole other level. And Elder Bednar, in this masterpiece of a talk, is trying to help us graduate from the first group to the second. He actually uses verse 4 of section 59 as, as a key passage in his text, as he talks about what it means to be crowned with commandments, not a few. See, why do, I, why do they not feel like, like jewels on my crown? Because I still haven't fully been changed by the atonement of Christ. I haven't had this mighty change of heart yet. It still feels like, ah, oh, another rule I have to follow. Instead of, wait a minute, I have followed every commandment he's given me, and every time it has opened the parameters of happiness and peace. Remember, this is Abraham chapter 1, finding that there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. I sought the blessings of the fathers. Well, he could have added, I sought the commandments of the fathers. How did they live? Because they pulled it off. How, whatever they were doing in their, in, their, in their lifestyle, it brought them to a greater happiness and peace and joy. And I want that. So how should I live? Be my, my model. Be my mentor. 
And what Elder Bednar pulls out from section 59, verse 4, it's you've kept commandments and opened yourself to a certain degree of happiness. As you do so, God then gives you individualized commandments, not a few, one here and another there, line upon line, precept upon precept, opening the avenue for even greater happiness for you. Now, these are not the institutional commandments that, that everybody has to live by. Remember, we saw that back in section 58, that be careful how you present these commandments to the non-members there in Missouri. I have been crowned with a few commandments that I have felt an individual inspiration to almost a, a Jared, you're not going to go preach this to the rest of the church. You're not going to hold them to this standard. And I certainly, I'm not putting you on some higher pedestal because you don't deserve to be there. And believe me, I don't. But having kept this level of command, but for you, individually, personally, live this commandment. And you'll be amazed at how much happier you feel. Or stop doing this. No, it's not like on the, the list of proscripted actions. But if you want access to even a greater abundance of the Holy Ghost, then stop doing that. It might be a small thing. And it's certainly not a universal law. This is for you. But I've known in my life that as I live into those tailor-made tenets, those individualized commandments, I really have felt an increase of joy, of happiness in my life. It is a commandment worth fixing upon your crown because it opens the door to greater happiness and peace and rest for me, just like it did for Abraham. You see, what Elder Bednar is trying to do is to help us grow up in God by progressing through these levels of obedience from compliance, which is based on compulsion, to conformity, which is largely based on culture. I mean, everyone else is living this way. Ultimately, to arrive at true submission of our will to God, which is a result of full conversion to God. Now, as I poured over that talk uh, repeatedly, because it was so game-changing for me, I tried to put side-by-side -side in chart form. That, that helps me. I'm a visual learner. To see what is the difference between that compulsion, that mere compliance, that mere conformity, with real converted soul submission to God. And here's what it looks like. On the side of forced obedience, the compliance conformity side, you see a hope for reward. What will I receive? You get a sense of those that were jumping the gun and rushing to Zion to get something? On the side of willing obedience, which is the submission of our will to God's, you get a sense of more used would I be? What can I give? That's the consecration that the saints are being called upon to perform back in Ohio. It's the difference between duty on one side and true charity on the other. The first is an outward action. The second is an inner attitude. The first is living the letter of the law, while the second has graduated to living the spirit of the law. This next one is an interesting one. On the forced obedience side, you obey. I mean, that, yeah, you do. But on the willing obedience side, you more than obey. You have become obedient. Now, that might sound redundant. Isn't obey and becoming obedient the same thing? Well, not necessarily. Remember, the first was the outward action. The second is the inner attitude. In fact, I love this passage at the beginning of 1 Nephi chapter 2, 
where Nephi talks about his father, and he says that he was obedient unto the word of the Lord. Wherefore, he did as the Lord commanded him. Now, that really does seem redundant. He was obedient, so he obeyed. Well, duh. But do you get a sense of the difference? The first describes the quality of Lehi's character. He was obedient to the commandments of God. That's just how he was wired. He was an obedient person. He'd mastered that. And as a result of that, what did he do? Well, he obeyed. He did as the Lord commanded him. That, that, of course, that anything less than that would be a, a sin against self. It would be going against who he really was. So again, it's not just obeying. It's being obedient. The first part is the result of discipline. But the second has become your disposition. Going back to what we studied in section 58, the first side is being compelled in all things. But you do them, you comply. Whereas the second side is doing many things of your own free will. It's being an agent unto yourself. See, in the first, you're offering your hand in salute. On the second, you're offering your heart in self-sacrifice. In the first, you give the work, but in the second, you give your will. That's going to be important in two weeks when we get to section 64, where the Lord will say that he requires the heart and a willing mind. And the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. Isn't that what he's been talking about here? You'll eat the good things of the earth. It'll be a feast of fat things. You're setting the table there in the land of Zion. But what does the Lord require of you? Your heart and a willing mind. We saw blindness of heart before. Well, do you have the eyes to see and the heart to feel? And are you willing in all of this? Has your attitude changed and not just your outward action? Giving your hand is good. Giving your heart is better. Offering your work is positive and noble. But offering your will is exalted. Elder Bednar mentioned that the first side is a matter of willpower and grit and determination. But the second side is only made possible through the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Like I said, it's a result of conversion, of a mighty change that we cannot affect on our own. The first side, you're avoiding sins of commission. On the second, you're overcoming sins of omission. The first side of obedience is reactive, while the second side of obedience is proactive. The first one complies with institutional rules, and the second lives into individual revelations. That is being crowned with commandments, not a few. And you won't hear them preached from the pulpit. You won't find them written in Scripture, because that's institutional. That is universal. That's meant for all. But the individualized commandment, that only comes through the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Not for you to feel superior to anyone else. Not for you to look down and judge someone else that's on a different place. If they're still back in chapter 5 or chapter 6 of Matthew and you're on to chapter 7, fine, quit judging them. Let the Lord crown them with a commandment in His own time. And they will be ready for the happiness that comes as a result. I'm glad that God didn't force commandments upon me before I was ready to receive them with the proper attitude. I still have a lot of growing up in God to do, too. And I'm sure there are so many commandments yet waiting for me that God wants to crown me with 
to open the path to greater happiness and peace. Now with all of that as background, verse 5, the Lord will start speaking of commandments. Hopefully by now we've started had this paradigm shift and it's like, ah, more commandments? Awesome. A greater avenues to happiness and peace and rest for me. Bring it on. Crown me with them. Verse 5, Wherefore I give unto them a commandment, saying thus, First and foremost, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, mind, and strength, and in the name of Jesus Christ thou shalt serve him. There's the first great commandment, the vertical post of the Christian cross. Verse 6 then, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's the second great commandment, the horizontal crossbeam of that cross that we are called upon to take up daily. He goes on in verse 6, Thou shalt not steal, neither commit adultery, nor kill, nor do anything like unto it. I mean, if you're already living that higher law of loving your neighbor as yourself, then you'd never stoop to those lesser levels. Now, there's more than those two great commandments. He goes on in verse 7, Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things. Interesting to think of gratitude as a commandment. I remember Elder Packer's words that we're more often punished by our sins than for them. So that wickedness is, if righteousness is its own reward, then the opposite is also true. Wickedness is its own punishment. If commandments are meant to, to bring us to greater happiness, then they're also meant to, to keep us away from sorrow. Can you put all of that in terms of gratitude? Is ingratitude a damning sin? One that punishes us directly? Punished by our ingratitude, not the, punished for our ingratitude? Does it kind of shrivel our souls a little bit? If we're not opening them outward and upward to express to God our gratitude for the gifts that he so generously pours out upon us. We'll see more about gratitude in a moment, but keep that in mind. After reiterating the first two great commandments and repeating some of the more serious sins in the, in the Ten Commandments, it's the first thing he lists. Be grateful. That's part of that paradigm shift. Recognize I'm trying to crown you with commandments, not a few, and revelations and blessings. It's all the same in my book. Verse 8, Thou shalt offer a sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in righteousness, even that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's why confessing goes along with forsaking. That's why in all my cries to repentance in section 58 for Martin Harris and W.W. Phelps and Sidney Rigdon, there are there's greater blessings I need to, that I want to offer you, but you have to humble yourself and offer me first a broken heart and contrite spirit. And then in verse 9, he begins what we often associate as the, the key message of section 59. We often think of 59, oh yeah, section 59 is the revelation on the Sabbath day. Yeah, it is. But in context... Why is he talking about the Sabbath? Honestly, of all the examples I could give, well, let me put it this way. If I was going to teach a lesson on being crowned with commandments, not a few, or if I succumbed to the temptation to tell you some of the commandments, the individualized ones that God has given to me, I think the best illustrations I could offer would be about Sabbath day observance. In fact, Sabbath day is such a fascinating topic to consider in light of what we've been studying in this section so far. Because talk about the need for a paradigm shift. As a kid, and I can see it in my own children, unfortunately, there's often this sense of, oh no, it's Sunday. I can't do anything. 
My wife always jokes that when she was little, her least favorite primary song was Saturday is a special day. It's the day we get ready for Sunday. Because for her childhood mind, she was like, no, 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 no. So wait a minute. S Sunday is already off limits to do anything fun. And now you're starting to, to, to encroach on my Saturday too? Now I, I've got to spend my Saturday doing nothing, so I'm prepared to do nothing on Sunday? Oh, that's the worst. Well, that's probably true of most of us in our childhood perspective. Until we have this paradigm shift of commandments, not a few. Being crowned with them. Because then all of a sudden, Sabbath day, oh, it's not a day of don'ts. It's a day of glorious do's. And in that light, no wonder I have all these don'ts because I'm not interested. I don't have time. Those detract from what I could be doing on this day to make it a delight. As the Old Testament describes the Sabbath as it ought to be. You want to turn to the Lord and ask to be crowned with some personalized precepts to follow? then ask him about your Sabbath day. Ask him about some things you could begin doing to sanctify it. Or some things that you could stop doing because they're just getting in the way of better things. Good, better, best. Wow, Elder Oaks's famous classic talk about that. Sabbath day is a great place to study it. The good is the universal expectation, but the better and best, oh, that's, that's up to you and the Lord. That's going to be an individualized piece of inspiration. So how does he give it to us here? Verse 9, that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world. Thou shalt go up to the house of prayer and offer up my sacraments upon my holy day. So that's part of the perspective we should have on the Lord's day. It's a way for me to become unspotted from the world. Scarlet sins just starting to fade into that white wool because of what is happening to me on the Sabbath day, offering up my sacraments upon the Lord's holy day. It's interesting that he would say that. Offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. And when we, to me anyway, when I think of the sacrament in terms of the Sabbath, it's the sacrament that the Lord is offering me. Here, take this bread in remembrance of my body. Here, take this water in token of my blood. He is offering us his sacraments on his holy day. But he's also asking us to offer up our sacraments. What is it that we can try to make holy, to sanctify, and to give to him? Can it be our prayer? Can it be our fasting? We'll see both of those in a moment. Can it be our worship and our work? Can it be our service? Can it be our sorrow for sin? What can we give him? He is offering us his sacraments. Are we offering him our sacraments in return? Remember Zion, it's not about what you're receiving, it's what you're giving. What am I giving on the Sabbath? In verse 10, For verily this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors, but not necessarily from mine, to pay thy devotions unto the Most High, to pay them. It is something that we owe based on all that the Lord has offered us to pay our devotions, to rest from our labors, to give God the, the ultimate labor that we can perform. You see, rest is more than just taking naps. Though when you can squeeze one in, that's a, that's a beautiful Sabbath day activity, believe me. But I used to think well, often, especially when I was in bishoprics, I'm like, the day of rest? Yeah, you're, whatever. 
I mean, I say do all I can during the week, and then on Sunday I do all the rest. Is that what you meant by that? Well, no. But neither did I mean worldly rest only. The best definition of rest I've ever seen is in section 84, when he describes rest as the fullness of God's glory. Ah, there's a day of rest. A day to receive God's glory closer to its fullness. In verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, thy vows shall be offered up in righteousness on all days and at all times. Now that's an interesting one. On all days, at all times. Now I think too often we, make, we want to make Sabbath a different day. And it should be. But to, I'll put it this way, spirituality was never meant to be confined to the Sabbath. It was meant to be concentrated on the Sabbath. Now there's a difference there. The reason we concentrate on something, I've shared this in other lessons, that often we, we, God tries to isolate so we can concentrate, so we can then reintegrate. That's, that's mission life for you. He isolates a missionary from other cares of the world so you can concentrate on your spirituality during the length of your mission so that then, hopefully, you can reintegrate that spirituality in a, a more full life with all the other kinds of responsibilities that you have like with sports practice or music practice or things like that, you isolate the measure that you just can't figure out because it's too hard to play. Or you isolate this one skill that I'm just, I keep messing up on in the game. But that's not the only thing you do. You isolate and concentrate so that you can then reintegrate. And the Sabbath is my day to concentrate on spiritual things. I'm isolating it, so I'm not worried about all the other stuff I have to do. But if I isolate it to the Sabbath and then concentrate on it, on the Sabbath, then I can reintegrate it into the rest of my week. It's not that all other six days become my Sabbaths, because there's other stuff I have to get done. There's work, and there's fun, and there's play, and there's all these other wonderful things that are part of life. But they can include the kinds of spiritual strength that I've been concentrating on, on the Sabbath. See, I worry sometimes we go to the opposite extreme, and we do confine our spirituality to Sunday. I remember once, years ago, the kids were in the back of the minivan, and it was a weekday, and we are just driving around town, and I had some, some spiritual music playing. I don't know, I, I listened to other things too. But for some reason that day, I just felt I wanted to be closer to God, and I was just listening to some beautiful spiritual music. And one of my kids in the back, they were little, they just kind of piped up out of nowhere with this confused look on their face and said, Is it Sunday? And I just laughed and reassured them, no, no, it's Tuesday or Thursday or whatever it was. But it struck me at the time, wait a minute, the fact that they were listening, that they heard church music, spiritual song, they automatically assumed, oh, it must be Sunday, since Sunday is the day that we do that. And I thought, oh, no, are, are we, have I been confining our family's spirituality to the, to the Sabbath? instead of simply concentrating it on that day so I can then reintegrate it throughout the rest. Our devotions, our vows, should be offered up in righteousness on all days, all times. Just give it a greater focus on the Sabbath. That's what he gets at in verse 12. Remember that on this, the Lord's day, thou shalt offer thine oblations and thy sacraments unto the Most High, confessing thy sins unto thy brethren and before the Lord. An oblation is an offering, something that we're giving to God. 
So we give him our offerings, we give him our sacraments. Remember, he's given us his sacraments. I give him ours, mine, in return. And I confess my sins unto the brethren and before the Lord. Now, careful here. We saw in the last revelation and the importance of confession. But that can be taken to the extreme where we are just airing our dirty laundry. I mean, fast and testimony meaning is meant to testify of Christ, but not to, to get specific on all of the, the individual sins he has forgiven me of that week. Now, like I said, all sin is confessed to the Lord. Major sin confessed to priesthood leadership. So what's this about confessing thy sins unto thy brethren and before the Lord? Now, yes, that could be who's the brethren he's referring to, or his bishop, you know, the bishop or the stake president, and you're confessed. Great, that, that's included. But I also wonder, and this does and should happen in testimony meeting. It can and should happen in our classes and quorums. Can we confess not necessarily the specific sin that we committed, but can we confess our sinfulness? Can we confess our humanity? Can we admit that we struggle, that we're broken, that we need help. I've always loved the story of the woman with the issue of blood that reaches out in her fear to touch the, the hem of the Savior's garment and then feels virtue flow out of him into her and she's healed. But then there's this moment, I mean, to see the, the emotional roller coaster she's on, there's this hopelessness because for the last 12 years she's suffered and has never gotten better. Then this hope as she hears about Jesus Christ. But then this fear, but what's, what are the people going to say since I can't be around them? And then this, this courage, I'm going to go, I'm going to try. And then this elation that I'm healed. And then this complete horror when Jesus stops and looks around and says, who touched me? And now she's devastated. I have to admit that I've made him unclean by touching him, his robe, in my uncleanness. I have to admit that I've come among the multitude when I'm supposed to be far away from anyone because of this ritual impurity. She was not supposed to be around people, but she braved the multitude to come unto Christ. That in and of itself is a powerful lesson. But the lesson I'm referring to here is that moment when Jesus says, who touched me? Because if you read the accounts in the New Testament that describe it, multiple of the gospel writers talk about it. They describe this moment where Peter is looking at Jesus kind of like dumbfounded, like, are you serious? And good old headstrong Peter is the one who probably, probably the only one who has the guts to say what was on everybody else's mind. Because he says, what do you mean? Who touched you? Everybody touched you. I mean, we're muscling our way through the packed streets of Jerusalem. I've been in the old city, and it's, yeah, still packed streets. And you're touching everybody as you're jostling your way through. I mean, picture going through the, the hallway in, in, in high school during passing period, right? And everybody's slammed between the lockers, and you're just trying to get to your next class in time. And everybody's touching everybody else. It's like a mosh pit going on. And so Peter's like, what do you mean? Who touched you? No offense. That's the dumbest question I've ever heard. But in one of the gospel accounts... This tiny detail is included. It says, and when all denied, that's when Peter said, what do you mean who touched you? Now, do you see that the irony here? Peter's comment is, suggests the idea of, well, everybody's touching you. But that other phrase, when all denied, suggests that nobody wanted to admit it. Now, that to me speaks volumes. It's like, 
What do you mean who touched you? Everybody touched but nobody touched. Make up your mind, Peter. Did everybody touch me or did no one touch me? Because no one's saying a word to admit that they did. And that, to me, is what makes it all the more breathtaking. When this woman comes forth and confesses her brokenness and her repair, her wholeness that came because of the virtue of Christ, that she comes and confesses what was wrong with her and what had changed as a result of coming into contact with Christ. Can you imagine a testimony meeting where right after the sacrament has been administered, Jesus comes to the pulpit and looks out at all of us and asks, who touched me? I felt virtue come out of me. I felt healing and forgiveness. Many of you came today with, with drooped shoulders, with hands weary and hanging down, with feeble knees. Who did I lift? Who felt forgiveness or comfort or an answer to prayer? And when all denied, can you picture that happening? Oh no, not me. I'm good. I'm one of those, those saint side of people. I'm, I'm okay. I don't need to confess anything. I don't need to confess my brokenness. I, I didn't touch you. I didn't come to the sacrament table with need. I am haunted by that phrase from the New Testament. And when all denied, because Peter was right. What do you mean who touched you? Everyone touched you. Everyone came with need, with brokenness, with frailty, with humanity, with sin. But if we'll confess our sinfulness unto our brethren, so they don't feel so alone in theirs, Someone has the guts, the courage to come and admit, I needed help. And I came today to touch the Savior's garment. I came to partake of the emblems of the sacraments that he was offering me. And what sacrament did I come offering him? A broken heart and a contrite spirit, because that's all I have to give. But I've been healed. I've been made whole. I'm being fixed through my faith in Jesus Christ. Who touched them? I did. And I hope we can get to a point where as a church, we stop denying that we touched Jesus because that's why we came. May we confess our brokenness to each other. May we admit it to God and rejoice in the wholeness that he provides to us in consequence of his condescension. Imagine what the Sabbath would do if we made it that kind of a day at church. Now, it doesn't just have to happen at church. Sabbath doesn't just last two hours after all. It's a day of rest, not a two-hour block of resting from our labors. In verse 13, he says, On this day thou shalt do none other thing only let thy food be prepared with singleness of heart, that thy fasting may be perfect, or in other words, that thy joy may be full. He admits that there's other work that has to be done, things like preparing food, 
there's other things we could add to that list. I'll let you, I'll leave you with the Lord and individual commandments, not a few that you can, you can discuss on what can and can't or should or shouldn't be done on your Sabbath. But whatever you do, it can be done with singleness of heart. Doctors and nurses and police and fire and first responders, those that have to work on the Sabbath can still do so with singleness of heart. Maybe it's a different day because of what you play or don't play on the radio or what thoughts you do or don't entertain in your downtime. There's ways to make it a different day, even when you have to work on that day like other days. Or when my wife was pregnant and shouldn't, couldn't fast on Fast Sunday. Well, could she still approach the Lord with singleness of heart and decide, well, I can't fast from food, but I can fast from the treats I normally would want to eat, and I'll just be really healthy for my baby's sake and for my spirit's sake in making Fast Sunday a different kind of day. Speaking of fasting, it's interesting the parallels when he says at the end that your fasting may be perfect, or in other words, let me say this in a different way, that thy joy may be full. Wait a minute, what? It's like you're on, like picture a multiple choice test where mark the synonym for the following phrase. Thy fasting may be perfect. And it's like, um, your agony may be complete or my suffering might be full. No, that your joy may be full. Wait, that's the answer? Um, perfect goes with full. I guess that makes sense. Fasting goes with joy. Huh? Yeah, look at verse 14. Verily, this is fasting and prayer. Or in other words, rejoicing and prayer. This is the next question on our test. Right now we're doing syllogisms. This is to that as that is to this. We'll find the parallels, right? Fasting and prayer equals rejoicing and prayer. Well, draw the, draw the links. Well, prayer to prayer, duh. Fasting to rejoicing? Ooh, you saw, okay, he must mean it. He said it twice. Perfect fasting equals full joy. Fasting and prayer equals rejoicing and prayer. I guess the Lord was serious when he said, don't disfigure your face so it looks to other people like you're fasting. Maybe this is still part of the paradigm shift he's been after since verse 4. Can fasting be part of a commandment crown? Oh, when we're doing it right, it can. And doing it right is something worth pondering. In verse 15 when he says, And inasmuch as you do these things with thanksgiving with cheerful hearts and countenances, you know, back to that idea of fasting with sad countenances, not with much laughter, for this is sin, but with a glad heart and a cheerful countenance. Now, no, he's not banishing laughter there, but much laughter on a day that could be focused on more high and holy things, and there's, there's some room for improvement. But yes, plenty of room for gladness and cheerfulness and so on. You should be receiving all these things and doing these things with thanksgiving, Cheerful hearts and countenances. To me, there, there's something there. Like I said earlier, in the Old Testament, it speaks of the Sabbath becoming a delight. Yes, that would require a paradigm shift for most of us. The Sabbath becoming something that we're thankful for and cheerful about and glad to participate in. In some ways, verse 15 suggests, together with 13 and 14, connecting fasting with joy and rejoicing. I, I, to me, I get the sense that the Lord is trying to help us see you want to know if you're doing it right? Then does it make you happy? Does it bring you greater joy? Finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. Is it coming on the Sabbath? If it is, then you're doing it right. It's working. 
In fact, that helps me understand it better. We often talk about, oh, that, that's breaking the Sabbath. And the idea of breaking something was interesting to me. I, you picture sometimes like the Ten Commandments and you broke the law. But think instead about the, what's the, what are the commandments for? The, or even what's the Sabbath for? Remember the Lord's great statement in Mark that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? The Sabbath is supposed to do something for us. And so you think about what does it mean to have a broken Sabbath? Oh, well, it's broken. It doesn't work properly. It doesn't function the way it was designed. It's broken. Well, what is the Sabbath designed for? To connect us to heaven, to bring us joy and rejoicing, to fill us with an, almost an inherent desire to give thanks. And if what we do or choose not to do on the Sabbath is helping with that, then it worked. It did what it was designed to do. And if what you do or don't do on the Sabbath doesn't lead to that, then it's broken. It's not functioning according to design. Over the years, I have had youth and young adults ask me, sometimes specifically, is this such and such a thing against the Sabbath? And I always respond, it's a great question. You tell me. And they're like, I can't. That's why, I ask. That's why I'm asking you. I'm like, no, no. Then I kind of review some of this stuff from Section 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants. When you do that or don't do that, does it help or does it hurt your Sabbath? Maybe it's the pragmatist in me. I just want to see results. Or, as the Lord said, here's the pragmatist in him. By their fruits ye shall know them. Well, take the fruits of your, of your activities on the Sabbath. And is it helping or hurting? Is it fixing or breaking what this beautiful day is meant to do for us? Then in verse 16, he starts to pivot to what he'll say at the end of this revelation. Verily I say that inasmuch as ye do this, so to the degree that you're making a Sabbath work in the way it was designed, to that degree the fullness of the earth is yours, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and that which climbeth upon the trees and walketh upon the earth. I mean, day six came after day five and four for a reason. Man and woman does have dominion over these things. But day six is also squeezed between those four and five blessings with a day seven rest, a Sabbath. If you'll do what, what day seven was intended for, then you'll be blessed with what day four and five were, were meant for. The fullness, the feast of fat things. Yes, we need to, to grow those goods somehow. In verse 17, yea, the herb and the good things which come of the earth, whether for food or for raiment or for houses or for barns or for orchards or for gardens or for vineyards. Pretty good list of sources there. Verse 18, yea, all things which come of the earth in the season thereof are made for the benefit and the use of man. And then he, But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, they're both to please the eye and to gladden the heart. There's a lot of joy mentioned in this, in this revelation, which if we're focused on the Sabbath might seem out of place since for so many of us, the Sabbath is not a day of joy. No, it's, it's all about gladdening the heart. It's about pleasing the eye. And then 19, he goes on, yea, for food and for raiment, he said that before, but then he adds, for taste and for smell, to strengthen the body and to enliven the soul. I love what the Lord is doing here. It's one thing to just, well, I'll put it this way. I am not a very good cook. I'm, I've been practicing more lately and getting a little bit better at it. But for the most part, for me, it's like if it's more than three ingredients, I'm out. Uh, and if it's like 
use flour. I'm like, whoa, that's cooking on an elemental level. Isn't there some kind of a box mix I can just add a few things to? And sadly, there are some meals that I have made that both myself and my family will admit, well, dad, this one was just fuel. Okay. Or it reminds me of when we, when I was, had some COVID symptoms and I, I couldn't taste or, or smell. It took all of the joy out of eating. Believe me. It was actually an easy week or two to eat healthy because I couldn't taste anything anyway. So I might as well eat the stuff that's good for me that doesn't taste good. Uh, great system. But as far as joy, there wasn't much joy. It became just fuel, just fill up the tank. But that's not only how the Lord intended it. You can go back through 17 and 18 and 19 and see the fuel in the tank side of things. Yes, it's for food and for raiment. You got to eat and you got to be clothed. It is for the benefit and use of man. But more than that, take it up a notch. And what else does it for? It's to please the eye. Do you realize that nature could have been ugly and, and we've, we'd still have to live here? I mean, I've, I've driven through some ugly places. I won't name any. So you, some of you live there. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it, it just, it's not very pleasing to the eye at all. And honestly, the whole world could be that, and we'd still be stuck here. We'd still, and we'd be grateful we had a place to live. Or take it to the idea of not just for food and raiment, but for taste and for smell. Do you realize that all food could be tasteless and smell like nothing? It would still strengthen the body, its fuel, but it wouldn't enliven the soul. And so, and in this passage, I get to see, we catch a glimpse of the character of God, his goodness, that when he could have gotten away with the kind of meals that I cook, just fuel, just put it, to, put it in the tank, <laughs> quit complaining, it's, oh, you're going to love how this tastes. I, I, like I said, I'm starting to get to that point where I'm actually cooking some things like, whoa, I actually want somebody to try this. This tastes amazing. It's going to enliven their soul. My sister-in-law is like that. She loves to cook things that will enliven the soul and not just strengthen the body. She loves to set things up in a way that it will please the eye. I'm, I'm, sadly, I'm a male, and, and, and not to overgeneralize or stereotype, but there's a reason for some of those stereotypes. As a male, for me so often, it's all about function and who cares about form. It's like setting the table and making like nice fancy things and making it look good. We're just here to, to fill the stomach. And I'm so grateful for the women in my life that have helped me see that side of the Savior and of our heavenly parents. That it's not just about providing food and raiment. It's not just for your benefit and use. I want to make you happy. I want to enliven your soul. I want you to smell this. Have you ever smelled something that was just so amazing? It's like, oh, can you make a candle of this? I want to smell it all the time. Or tasting something that's like, wow. And things that don't even need a recipe. First time I ate a passion fruit in Puerto Rico and thought, where has this fruit been my whole life? Back in California, I had, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't want to look down on apples and oranges and pears and peaches and everything else that's amazing, but a passion fruit? Hello, you've been holding out on me. You want to talk about taste. You want to talk about enlivening. It's amazing. And it's incredible to me that God loves us like that.
the way he says in verse 20, it pleaseth God that he hath given all of these things unto man. For unto this end were they made to be used with judgment, not to excess, neither by extortion. It, this, you understand the beginning? I mean, the second half is that, yeah, it's interesting. Be, judge, be, be, be wise in your use of natural resources and in food. Don't go to excess. Don't extort others. It's, I mean, or don't extort the earth. Be, be careful. Be judicious. But I love the beginning. It pleaseth God that he made it this way. This was not some kind of, a, oh, they're going to complain if it's just food. And that's, again, me as a dad, as a, as a, as a non-cooking father, that quit complaining. It's just, just eat it. I eat it. You eat it. Okay. But to get to a point where it's, oh, I'm so excited for them and the experience that they'll have. And for God to feel that way about us, it pleaseth him. No wonder he wants to crown us with commandments, not a few. He has to establish some kind of a lowest common denominator universal so we don't go around killing each other and stealing from each other and doing all those major don'ts of the Ten Commandments. But to go above and beyond that, to go from bad to good, and then his best steps, to go from good to better and best, to crown us with commandments, not a few, because he wants us to be happy. That he, it pleaseth him. Next time you see something that looks good or smells amazing or tastes incredible, next time you experience something in nature or in life that enlivens your soul, please recognize it be behind it the goodness of God and a heavenly smile that he's as excited about that thing as we are. All of that puts verse 21 into perspective where it says that in nothing doth man offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled. Now that's strong language. I've sometimes in introducing this verse to seminary students, I've asked them, what's your pet peeve? And it is fun to talk to people about pet peeves. There's some interesting ones out there. I've got some interesting ones myself, where it's just like, oh, I can't stand it when somebody uh, ends the you know, opens the microwave door and then closes it again, and there's still seconds on the clock. Whoa. Uh, you you got to clear it and get it back on zeros. Or, oh, the way that, I mean, you actually squeeze the toothpaste bottle in, uh, tube instead of rolling it up from the bottom. Or which direction does the toilet paper come from? Over the top or back behind the back? And it's like, oh, no, these are hmm, serious things. You really want to understand somebody's quirkiness. Ask them about their pet peeves. Yeah, now, some pet peeves you would understand. Like, okay, yeah, that one, that, that, doesn't that bother everyone? That should be everybody's pet peeve. Other was like, that's unique to you. Well, look at the Lord's pet peeves in verse 21. In nothing doth man offend God. Against none is his wrath kindled. There are two things that really bug him. Save those who, number one, confess not his hand in all things. And number two, obey not his commandments. Now, that second one is the one we would expect. Disobedient really bugs God. And after we saw in section 58, you're being sent here to keep the commandments. Uh, in section 59, I want to crown you with commandments, not a few. So much of these last two revelations about obedience, a willing heart and mind giving to God. Well, don't you understand these commandments are your, for your sake, not for mine? 
how can you break them? Because then I have to revoke the promised blessing. Then you end up complaining against me even more. I, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but unfortunately, I'm more bound because you don't do what I say. And not being able to bless you with what I've promised you is hard for me because I love you. That's what kindles my wrath if you need strong language. That's what offends me. In reality, it's what saddens me because I am a God of goodness and generosity who just wants to give. That is what puts in perspective what we might consider the odd pet peeve. The first one he mentions, if you don't confess my hand in all things. Now, this sometimes comes up when we talk about God is a jealous God and like, oh, well, that's kind of petty of him, isn't it? Well, no, not for his sake. He's going to be God with or without us. But for our sake, remember, punished for or by our sins, not for them. It's like when you don't recognize me as the only true God, I get jealous for your sake because you can't receive the blessings that only I can offer. Satan has nothing good to give you. Your reward lurks from beneath, we saw already today. If your sin is one of ingratitude, then I can't rejoice with you in the good things that I've given. Remember verse 20, it pleaseth God that he's given us these things. Then no wonder it saddens God when we don't see his smile peeking out from behind the gift. You understand what he's getting at? Again, not for his sake, but for ours. With every gift, we could come to know the giver better. And that's the real purpose for gifts to begin with. So now does it make more sense why in verse 7 he would give us that commandment right after the two great ones? To thank the Lord our God in all things. It establishes a relationship of love based on a recognition of goodness and generosity and gratitude given in return. Maybe that's one of the oblations, one of the sacraments that I can offer to God on the Sabbath and on all days at all times. I can recognize the hand of God behind my gifts, behind his gifts, the ones that he has given us. I've often suggested that to people as they're praying. That the part where we're offering thanks, we often say thank you for. And for is a good preposition, but two is an even better one. And instead of being thankful for, can we be thankful to? To be thankful to God for whatever he's given us. He then says in verse 22, Behold, this is according to the law and the prophets. Wherefore, trouble me no more concerning this matter. <laughs> Stark ending there. Quit, quit bugging me about stuff. It's almost like he's saying, Guys, all this stuff's in the scriptures. There's really nothing I've said in this revelation that you couldn't find in the Old and New Testament. Uh, when Isaiah talks about fasting and the Sabbath, it's glorious. I mean, remember, even when he gives the two great commandments, upon this hang all the law and the prophets. He's getting at that again. Then in 23, but learn that he who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward. And what's that reward look like? On this side of the veil, even peace in this world. And on the other side of the veil, and eternal life in the world to come. After all, I started this revelation talking about those who live to inherit the earth and those who die 
to rest from their labors. That's why there's reward that bridges the divide, both here and hereafter, both present and future. Peace in this world. The saints in Missouri will long for that before long. And eternal life in the world to come, well, there's Polly Knight's reward. He then ends in verse 24, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and the Spirit beareth record. Amen. You have my word for it. I am the word, and the Spirit itself will testify that this is all true. And though mine pales in comparison to his, I can bear my testimony of that as well. If I was the one filling out the brochure that Sidney Rigdon was called upon to write, if I had the privilege of bearing record and bearing testimony of the glimpses of Zion that I have seen in wards that I've lived in where people truly are coming together to be of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness and ensure that there's no poor among us, on days of real rest, the fullness of God's glory, when I catch a glimpse of the greater happiness and peace and rest that God has in store for me, on days when I feel peace in this world that passeth all understanding, or when I contemplate the eternal life in the world to come that God has promised the faithful, then I can bear record of what the Spirit has borne record to me. It's all about our perspective, how we view these things. When Ezra Booth first got to Missouri, and he kind of jumped the gun to get there, unprepared, unconverted to the, to the lifestyle of Zion, just wanted to get to the land, he was so devastated and disappointed by what he saw that when he went back to Ohio, he not only apostatized, but he then proceeded to attack the church with some of the first real intense anti-Mormon literature written. He called Joe Smith's so-called Zion a curiosity not worth going to Missouri to see. Compare that to a more faithful saint that went with the kind of pure heart that God was trying to, to develop in each of us, Reynolds Cahoon, when he went and saw Zion, still in embryo, far from what it was meant to ultimately become, but saw past the natural eye and viewed things through an eternal perspective, he wrote about the experience, there my mortal eyes beheld great and marvelous things such as my eyes once never even contemplated of seeing in this world. And he hadn't even really seen anything yet. But that's the beauty of the eye of faith. One last thing to say about this Sabbath, because again, Sabbath is our day to glimpse Zion in its glory, and then spend the rest of the week trying to live into that vision and help the world grow into it as well. A few years ago, when the apostles really were, began emphasizing the Sabbath day, and, and kept talking about it being the light and so on. It struck me at the time that most of the verses that they quoted about the Sabbath day were coming from the Old Testament, and specifically from the books of Exodus and Ezekiel. And I wondered about that. I said, why so much from Exodus and Ezekiel about the Sabbath? And the more I pondered that, the more it hit me. What's the, what's the similarity between Exodus and Ezekiel? Ah, it's when Israel was living in enemy territory. In Exodus, they're in Egypt. It's an away game. In Ezekiel, they're in Babylon, another away game. 
They're in enemy territory. And what do they need? They need a day to remember God. They need a day to feel like they're back at home in the promised land, rejoicing in the blessings that God has given his chosen people. If they need a day of delight to be able to endure other days of darkness or disappointment. Sound a little like Missouri? The land of your enemies, it was described at earlier. To, to see the away game that they're trying to play at this time and to need time, sacred space carved out, a sanctuary in time as the Sabbath day has been described as, to gain greater happiness and peace and rest, to be crowned with commandments, not a few. In our days of, in Egypt or in Babylon, in our days in a Missouri that is not yet Zion, if your life feels like a desert that is yet to blossom as the rose, then let the Sabbath day be your delight. Trust in God's generosity and goodness, what, he please, what pleases him to give us. I am so grateful for that goodness of God. I see it. I see the smile poking out behind every commandment that he gives me, as well as behind every blessing and every revelation. I'm thankful for the revelations we were able to study today. And I pray that you and I may recognize the power that is in us to become agents unto ourselves, to become Zion, so that eventually we can build it. <laughs>